Where did you start your season off at? This year, um, boy, I, that one caught me off guard there, but I'd say here for grouse, upland birds, forest grouse. Really? So you yep. start that, was that September, is that blue yep. grouse? Yep, Labor Day weekend. So yep, go out and uh, yeah, eastern Nevada, checked out a few places, pretty hard with all the fires that were out there this year, so I had to go find some new spots. What is what is it about, I, I can understand the waterfowl part of, you know, we're going to get into that, but blue grouse are more of a tree bird. Tell, I, I, I've hunted them twice and it seems like, are you looking in trees for them? Looking in trees, it all depends on the year, so or timing of year, I would say. So, you know, early on in the year, they're everywhere. They could be up, they can be down, they can be in berries, they can be in firs, they could be out of habitats, you don't think. But, yeah, you just got to find them. And then as the season progresses, you know, they want to get up in the trees and they want to be up on ridgetops, and then you're looking for them in trees. Do you use a dog? Yep. Pointers? Nope, just my lab. Flushing dog. Yeah, but she gives you a pretty good warning on stuff. She does. Um, they're pretty tame, so that really helps. You know, they're not a wild, crazy, flushing bird by any means. So they hold pretty tight for you. Oh, yeah. And what is the reason why you hunt them? Just to get out, get the family out, or are they is yeah. it, are they edible? Or are they good eating? They're the best bird on the planet. Really? Hands down. I would think like you would compare them to a sage grouse, and those aren't the best wow. birds on the planet. Well, like when I moved here, you know, I came from spruce grouse country, and those things are about as black as your microphone for their meat, you know, and they're, they're edible, but, um, yeah. So when I first came here, it's like, okay, let's go say we killed one of these things and you open it up and it's like, whoa, this is as white as a rough grouse. And then you look and it's like, yeah, it's three times the size. And it's like, holy moly, these things are awesome. And are they, is it something to where you just have a general idea of where they live in the state or is it something to where you have to, do you call them? Do they call back to you? It's just, you, you, it's kind of just walking around and you have a notion that they might be in the area based yeah, on the report. That's pretty much it. You know, there's places, you know, like Alaska has a season in the spring where you call them and that's pretty cool, but that's been on my list for a while. Maybe someday I'll go do that. And if, when you start talking about upland birds and being a waterfowl hunter, which I know you as a waterfowl hunter, I know what you do, you know, for a living and, and how ingrained you are in that and how long you've been doing that. I mean, our, our past goes back 15, 20 years with Nevada Waterfowl Association and, and getting to know each other through that, the Stillwater Refuge, the Canvasback Club. I've been to some of your talks down there. Is it something to where you have to be hunting at all times with your passion for the outdoors? Or, do, you know what I'm saying is like, why would you start in September when you know how busy you're going to be through the rest of the waterfowl season? And why would a guy like you choose grouse? Is it something in your DNA that just says, I got to be hunting? I have to be out there. My, this is a good thing for my kids to witness and, and to get experience with. Why, yeah. why do you pick grouse, Chris, to start the season with? No, I'd say for me, I mean, one, it's the first thing open. I mean, where are you going to go to go, you know, what do you got September 1? You got doves and they're okay, but... Yeah, they've never, I didn't grow up in a dove hunting area. You know, we didn't have dove seasons where I grew up. And, you know, grouse we definitely had. And for me, I'd say the biggest thing with birds is just getting to see and handle different species. So for me, I mean, blue grouse were like way up on the list of what I wanted to see when I first moved out west. You know, yeah, I've never shot a pintail with a long tail before. It was all pretty exciting being out here. And then it's like, hey, blue grouse, let's go, let's go find them. And do you, when you say September 1st, you know, a lot of duck hunters start getting that notion of going north. 
Is it something that you do that early or do you, what is your mindset on going north as a waterfowl hunter? Do you start in September in Canada or do you go in October or do you even go to Canada at all? No, I'll go to Canada every year till I die. Um, no, but there's trade-offs, you know, I, I'm again, a variety guy, you know, I'm not just a mallard and big Canada goose hunter. Like, you know, a lot of people are, I like maximizing what I can get when I do a Canada trip. So you know, you go up there too early, these aren't going to be there. You get there too late and these are already gone. So I always try to target it so I can maximize a little bit of everything up in Canada. So for me, that's usually, you know, late September, early October kind of stuff. And when you get up there and maximize it, are you, your, your diversity of waterfowl, are you also getting after the grouse up there? Are you a guy that will see some run across the road or fly out of a ditch and then go saddle up with a, a gun? Or do you actually go walk for them? We try go to- walk for them. Yeah, we know. I've been going up to Canada since, boy, when was that? 95. So I was probably 22 at the time. And yeah, the first time we went up there is because we heard you could shoot, you know, eight canvas backs a day. So that's what we went up there for. And I think since then I've missed two years and one was because I was living in Fairbanks, which is pretty hard. I did go the other year I lived in Fairbanks, but I couldn't do it every year living that far and being a poor grad student. And then, yeah, the other year I was trying to go up to uh, northern Nunavut for the first year. They were opening snow geese in the middle of August. Trip didn't work out, but I made it halfway there before I had to turn around home. But otherwise, yeah, I'll go to Canada forever. 1995 to 2005 to 2015 is 23 years of 2018 now so 23 years of Canada you might have missed two years so 21 years ago into Canada and you're in you're in your mid-40s now do you still get that feeling like oh my gosh it's like the leaves are turning it's the dog days of summers are wearing on me it's time to get rocking I get my gun I go chase some blue grouse but really in the back of your mind are you thinking I'm making that migration north when those birds are getting ready to migrate south oh yeah no big time I mean it's a full year-round thing for me um you know like you mentioned i'm a biologist so i'm i'm catching and putting bands or radio transmitters on birds throughout the year i'm constantly doing that i'm really into decoys you know which is kind of a holdover from back in the day when decoys weren't that good looking you know but i got hooked and i've kept into that so for me it's it's different um i don't know i know a few people that do things similar to i do but kind of old school you know i like recycling stuff you know, I'm, I definitely get everybody likes, you know, the newest, hottest things, but I'm still old school. You know, I'd rather have 20 year old decoys that I've repaired two or three times and they're still holding up, you know, and I think about how many times these geese, how many, like having kids, it's fun as could be. Cause it's like, okay, how many geese do you think these decoys have seen die? You know, or a big discussion we had when we were in Canada this year, I think it was Canada. It might've been getting ready for going to Alaska here, but you know, it's like, okay, which side of the team, you know, there's fun discussions you're having with kids, you know, okay, who are the decoys rooting for? Are they on our side? Let's see how many we could fool. Or do they wish they could scream to the the real geese and like, don't come, don't come. So it's a lot different for us. You know, we're just pretty laid back. I mean, I'm, I bet you 95% of the time I hunt, I have a kid or a brand new hunter with me. So it's pretty rare it's almost totally rare that I'm hunting with just a bunch of guys my age. Actually, I don't think it's happened once this year yet. Really? Well, who do you go to Canada with? My kids. Yeah. How, been, how old are they? 
They are now 9-11, and let's see, I took the first one when she was four, and she did, they're two years apart, so the next year we went and the three-year-old went. So, and we don't do the hotels, I'm totally mobile. We're camping with a wood stove, and we move to where we go and what the next bird we're targeting, you know, where their ground zero's at. How's that drive up there with a four-year-old and a three-year-old? <laughs> It's, I mean, from re, from this part of the country to you going to Saskatchewan or yeah, Alberta? Yeah, so like Saskatoon's what twenty four hours from Reno, yeah. and um, yeah, we're again old school. My kids don't know that there's DVD players. Um, they've never played video games, and it's been pretty cool. I, you know, I'm kind of an artsy kind of guy, always making decoys. I can draw, I can paint, I can do all that. So we started it way back in the day that we get to Winnemucca. It's a good spot to to stretch your legs and go in Walmart. They get a new drawing pad and a whole new set of markers or pencils or whatever they want, and that's what they do the whole trip. At the end of the trip, I've got 50 pages from each of them of, you know, I've seen stuff of our wall tent where we got northern lights drawn over it or, you know, clouds of geese falling out of the sky with X's in their eyes and pellets in the air everywhere, you know. So they, it's pretty fun. You know, it's a neat way for me to, get the memory and you know they don't get distractions and these days you know like my 11 year old for example I mean I'll, I'll put you to a contest sometime but I bet you she can set decoys as good as you do with as much communication as you and I would require you know I just know she knows what we're doing like yesterday I had her out with a 10 year old neighbor girl and we went out boat hunting hunting on shore and um you know, she completely outfitted the neighbor girl with clothes, warm socks, her old pair of waders, and they set up three quarters of the decoys themselves, and it was totally fine. You know, and they killed birds. So that was fun. 11 year old girl, and she's doing, setting up a spread, and <clears throat> it's, it, you know, it happens a little bit, I think, and I've had this conversation with Dave before about girls and women you see them in hunting you see you know the deer hunting and you see turkey hunting which you know springtime's a little bit warmer and dave and i have had this conversation on you know does a girl get too cold is she too you know not strong enough or tough enough to be withstanding those elements of being a waterfowl hunter no is she not smart enough to be a waterfowl hunter that's not it at all your daughter's 11 and she's obviously being brought up by a guy that that you know, breathes this every day of his life. You work in it and you have a lot of love for waterfowl and a lot of respect and admiration and compassion. I know you do. Yep. Why is it not that more girls are involved in it? Why is it harder to get women? Am I speaking off base there, Nikolai? Or do you see the same thing to where I was telling Dave, it's like, man, I'll go to Idaho or I'll go to Stuttgart. And it's, it's not impossible to see it but it's pretty rare to go into a cafe after the morning hunt and everybody's out of the timber and back in the boats you don't see a bunch of girls you don't see them in their camo steel or in their bibs or their jacket on the chair eating the drinking coffee and talking duck hunting with the guys i'm i'm not saying they don't do it i'm just i've been a lot of places in the country and i don't see it i see a lot more in the deer hunting and in the turkey woods than i do in waterfowl do you see is that fair to say you think i think it's totally fair to say but i'd I, that's not how my world rolls for some reason. I don't know why, you know, I don't really do it purposely, but, um, you know, obviously married to a, a gal and uh, she's, you know, our first date was snow goose hunting during the first experimental mid-continent white goose hunt, you know, before it was even fully fledged. Um, but boy, again, thinking this year of all the new hunters I've taken out, 
100% of them have been women, you know, so I don't know, you know, just personalities. They're easier to deal with. I really find they're interested. They talk how it is. They'll let you know their shortcomings. They'll ask questions that they're not shy about. And uh, I find that they're really into it, you know. And do you see it as a growing community in Waterfowl? Is it a growing demographic to where with the things like CWA has the women in hunting program where they take only women out a few times a season. I know you've been involved in some hunts in the same regards as that. Is it something that you're, that you could put a positive vibe on of saying, yeah, I do. I really feel that the, the women in outdoors or women in duck hunting specifically are growing is a growing number. You think? Yeah, no, I think so. And you know, some of the official wildlife agency surveys that they're doing showing that it's actually probably the well it is the fastest growing demographic but i mean how many demographics we have in waterfowl hunting so you know no i think it's great uh, i think a big thing of it like we were talking before the show is you know a lot of the the eating and the food consumption and stuff like that you know people are really looking for alternatives you know do you want to go vegan because you think animals are living a bad life in a farm, you know, an industrial farm. So you just quit eating meat. You know, who wants to do that? You know, no one, no one, not very many people last that way forever. So they hear about hunting and all of a sudden here you got a place that, you know, birds, meat's not full of uh, antibiotics or, you know, who knows what. And, you know, living in poor conditions and Sometimes not the best deaths, you know, depending on which special YouTube video got posted on Facebook and everyone's sad, but they get into hunting and they start learning a pretty, pretty impressive respect for the animal. You know, it's up to you. It's life's in your hands and put it down quick. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got freezers full of meat to last the whole year. So I I think that's a big driver. I, I really think that local knowing where your food comes from has been probably the reason one of the bigger reasons that demographics growing so it's almost like you're saying that hunting is becoming quote unquote cool again because of this living off the land organic lifestyle i always talk about how hippies are talking about you know organic and the hunters have been this way for years of you know going out and harvesting their meal and then butchering their meat or, or, or harvesting their meat butchering their meat processing their meat preparing their meat cooking their meat celebrating over that but sharing and, and sharing and the in the camaraderie and the socialization that goes around a wild game feed and the, and i always stress about the compassion that goes into that pull of that trigger and what you just said the responsibility that we're taking in dispatching an animal that it seems like the, you know when you start talking about the vegan lifestyle or an uh, maybe even going as far as an anti that's the really that's the stickler thing is like you're killing an animal and i'm like i know that i get that but that's how things you know every animal that we eat goes through that process one way or the other and all of a sudden they get a chance to have the responsibility in their hands rather than just go picking up that plastic wrap package at the grocery store and you're telling me right now that you're that that's one of the main reasons in your opinion that people are getting involved in hunting because that to me sounds awesome yeah i know hands down yeah no i really think so and you know i think it's a lot of you know, we're not anti-hunters, but they're out there and they have their agendas as well. You know, we're always pushing habitat and we should be buying duck stamps and stuff, but they got their agendas as well. And, you know, there's people in the middle that definitely hear that, hear both sides of it. And then they get to make their own decision and then they either pursue it or they accidentally meet someone that says, yeah, let's go hunting. And I think it really opens their eyes. And I think everybody 
it would benefit all of us to work hard to get brand new people out hunting and not, you know, someone that hunts daughter, you know, cause she's probably going to go hunting anyways, but grab a kid that, or any, you know, even an adult that has never had a chance for it, probably won't do it if you don't take them and just get them out and show them what it's about. I mean, I had, what do we have? Three, sixth and fourth graders sleeping at our house the other night and we ate swans. You know, we got a swan mounted in the house, show their friends, you know, hey, that's what we're eating tonight. You know, not that bird, but they're seeing this right. big white swan on the wall. It's like, yeah, that plate right in front of you is swan meat. And they just devour it. You know, the smoker's running when we're making sausage, you know, some type of garlic uh, pepperoni kind of sticks. And when that's going on in our neighborhood, all the neighbor kids are on their bikes riding around the cul-de-sac with a big log of pepperoni in their hands and on on it. You know? I love it. I love it. Do you ever get any any backfire from introducing the neighbor kids or the school friends did did the parents ever come at chris nicolai and say look i know that you do it but don't be telling my kid that that swan is what he's eating for dinner have you ever is or do they already know that when these kids go to the nicolai's house that they're going to be fed wild game and educated on it yeah no i think yeah if they all the kids i mean they all go to school together you know my daughter's wearing camo every day to school They, they know what we're about you know we got duck boats in the driveway we got decoys Hanging on the side of our house. Yeah, it's obvious. Yellow dog always laying in the front yard. So, yeah, no, I've never never had problems with people like, like that. I mean, I've had other times. I'd say another common thing that we introduce strangers to in my family is cleaning birds. You know, I've been in downtown Portland at friends' apartment buildings, and we're cleaning cacklers in their driveway. And neighbor kids are going by looking at us funny. It's like, hey, you guys want to come see what this is? You know, who doesn't like an animal? You know, and yes, they come over and it's a dead animal. So you don't just start flinging stuff around. But, you know, hey, you know, here's a nice pretty one. And let them start looking at it. They love feeling the rubbery feet. Of course, they're always opening the bill and looking at the tongue, opening and closing the eyelids. And it's like, hey, well, we got to clean these. You know, we're getting ready for this. So, you know, if you don't want to see it, you can go. 99% 99% of the time, they're up for it. You know, you pull a heart out. And kids, you know, you give them a pair of rubber gloves so that they don't go home with blood all over them. But they get to see a heart, and then all of a sudden they're into this and taking home pockets full of, of feet. You know, it's like, yeah, if your parents don't like you, you can just throw it in the garbage. That's fine. Or a bunch of feathers. You know, I've probably done that 80 times in my life, 80 different kids in my life. You know, and that that's fine. I mean, we've had some parents that they'll see their kids and, you know, we'll talk to the parents and like, Hey, we didn't show them this stuff. We invited them and they kept sticking around. And if you want to hang out, go for it. And I bet you most of the time too, if the parents do have some concern, they're just as into the, into it as the kids are, you know, you'd be, you'd be a pretty unique person to not be interested in that general biology. Even if you're not into the killing and stuff, just being able to touch, something and see how it works in hearts. I mean, how many people have actually seen a real heart in their life? Right. Here, it's right there. You know, we're, Every time you hunt and harvest something, you have the chance to take the heart and liver out yep. and see it. Yeah. Before my next comment, though, you, you, the duck heart, are you are you eating these on a, on a consistent basis? Is that why you're pulling them out, or are you just pulling them out to show the kid? Pulling them out mainly to show the kid, but I mean, we'll eat them and stuff. Um, it all depends on what we're doing, you know, but I've... It's been interesting, you know, over the years, you know, you, you learn, it takes you a while to learn how to cook stuff. You know, in my first years, I had some first dates way back in the day that I was thought I was going to make her an awesome dinner. 
you know, stir fried golden eyes or something. <laughs> you know, and there was one date in particular. I mean, she got two bites in, and that that date was over. It was that bad that it was over. And it's like uh, that's a bummer. But you know, now you know, I get invited to cook stuff for people. Um, you know, like Endow. Nevada Department of Wildlife, they had a really neat event about a year and a half, two years ago, where they actually had a wild game luncheon for the state legislature, trying to get into more of this locavore type movement. And, uh, you know, I was the only non-state employee that was invited. I think I brought 80 pounds of meat and it was all gone by the end of the day. What would be a way, though, to duck hearts I, here down in the south, the, the, the coots and the livers and the hearts down there, is it is it a song? I'm trying to learn something right now because I, I've I've done it and I haven't mastered it yet. Is it something to where it's a flash fry for you, or just give me like the best way, real quick? If I was going to get some hearts out tomorrow, how could I roll with that? Yeah, pretty much foil packet with garlic, some spices, and some olive oil, and just let them simmer. Throw them on the grill and let them go. Keep them moist. So medium rare still. Yep. Now, the texture of a heart when you're eating it, is it more like a liver texture? No, it's hard. It's more gizzardy. Like more gizzardy. Yeah. So the texture of it's more of kind of like that hard bite at first and a little rubbery. Yep. So why do you eat them? Is there a good taste to them? Or are you do you have the mindset that you must use the entire bird? Do you breast birds or do you pluck every bird being who you are? Is is it bad to just breast the bird? Or can I take the legs off of a duck and get enough meat off of them to make it worth my time? Or are you of the mindset being old school like I know you are? Every bird that hits the deck and is brought back by your lab, do you pluck it? And is that the mindset that a waterfowler should have in your opinion. Yep. So keep in mind, it all goes back to my comment earlier where I'm, I'm more interested in a lot of birds. So the first thing is, what do you got? Do you have a harlequin or do you have a tundra swan? You know, plucking a tundra swan is going to take you forever. I've never done that. I've watched people try. I've seen people, you know, friends of mine that wanted to save all our swan down to make pillows and they made it to the second one when they had a pile of 20 to do and they're like, I'm done. You know, plucking stuff's not fun. But then like a harlequin duck, you're not going to pluck and roast a harlequin duck. I mean, that's a bird that's eating limpets and starfish and a lot of marine mammals, or not marine mammal, but marine inverts. And, you know, they're not going to be good. You can't just season them with Old Bay seasoning, put them on the grill medium rare. That's doomed for failure. So to me, it's all what you got, where you're at, how good a shape the bird is. You know, if it's obviously shot up, there's some parts you can't save. You know, a lot of states have also implemented um, edible portions laws, you know, so people have always had issues with wanton waste. Wanton waste technically is just removing a bird from the field, and we've never had a federal edible portion law before. The states are the ones that have all moved those up. I think Montana was the first one, like back in 94, where they had different sizes. I think it was goose and up. You had to save, you know, the breast, legs, and wings. Down to a mallard was breast and legs, and then down to a teal is just the breast. You know, where Alaska this last year, they're requiring you to save the breast, anything from a Branton up, breast, legs, wings, and back meat. They were actually proposed to include gizzards and livers as well, and hearts, but that part fell off. So I'd say right now Alaska has the most 
strict edible portions laws. So you got to consider that if you're a traveling hunter. You know, you don't want to go up and brant, uh, uh, breast a brant in Alaska and come home with that. That's a violation. So um, Edible portion law? Yeah, that's what I'd call them. You know, like I said, a lot of people always use the word wanton waste, but from a federal standpoint, wanton waste is just removing a bird from the field. You know, the feds never had a, have never had an edible portions law. You know, for wanton waste, it's removed from the field, and then there's no requirements after that. So these states started standing these up. Nevada just stood theirs up, what, probably six years ago, where we have to remove the breast from all birds, and that's it. You know, it's as simple as that. Would you say that that's pretty customary, pretty uniform across the continental United States, the lower 48, the breast? I think there's probably some states that still have nothing. You know, there's some states that you don't have to eat anything. You know, as long as you remove it from the field, you know, people do with them as they want. So, wanton waste. Can you spell that for me real quick? W-A-N-T-O-N. Wanton. Is that a law? Is that a guy's name or is it wanton? I don't know where it comes from, actually. Yeah. So, I can go into the field with Chris Nikolai and shoot a lemon of mallards mm -hmm. or some golden eyes or buffle heads, whatever. Take them out of the field back to my, what Dave Stanley calls your abode. And now you have them back to where they're not in the field anymore. I can legally go open my garbage can and throw those birds in there full of meat and everything and not still be considered breaking the wanton waste law? No, that would be, I'd say you already satisfied the wanton waste law. You remove the bird from the field. You know, it's as easy as that, like crow hunting, for example. You have to remove them from the field and not very many people eat crows. I don't crow hunt, so I don't know what you do with them. So, yeah, it's things like that, you know, but, you know, then it starts getting into the state law, you know, depending on where you're at, where what, what do you have to do with them? You know, you have to eat them. Can you donate them? You know, some places it's hard to donate them. Other places, do you feed them to cats? What do you do with them? You know, that's where a lot of people are. And, you know, like for me, I shoot birds, one, to see them in hand, but two, to put them in my freezer. So, I'm not one of the guys that goes to Canada knocking on doors and looking for people to give more birds to. You know, we'll come back with possession limits and we're camping, so it's really easy for us to, to cook them. You know, we're not in a hotel with no way to meet to cook them. I mean, we got, we bring pressure cookers, slow cookers, you know, big pots. We're eating birds while we're up there to, you know, be honest to keep shooting a few days, you know, you could, but that's my question. That's my question to you real quick. Nikolai is, yeah, I've had this conversation again with Dave a lot. This is a common one among hunters and managers and stuff is I don't like the fact that somebody can dictate to me as a duck hunter when I can eat my ducks. Mm -hmm. My point is, is a legal game, you know, a daily limit. I understand the the years of market hunting and, 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 and guys going out and destroying a bunch of ducks and selling them for, for profit. I'll keep one tidbit there, too. It's think about when that was what we had to preserve birds. That's actually where possession limits historically came from, was your ability to preserve them. Because of the, now with technology, it's a lot easier for us to do so? Yeah, and you just, you know, back then you had salt and you probably had a bunch of blocks of ice buried in sawdust. But my, my question, though, is that you can, they can tell me, you can go out and shoot, let's just where we're at right now, you can shoot seven birds a day, and you can have three times your legal daily limit for your possession limit, meaning I can have 21 birds in my freezer ready to eat. But 
I can't have 200 in there and do a wild game feed at the end of the year and have all my friends and family over because now they don't, you know, they're saying that you're over your possession limit. Yep. But in some states, you're telling me that I can just go throw those birds away and keep shooting ducks. So that make, it makes no sense to me even further now to where I feel, my opinion is, as long as I'm legal within my daily limit and I'm hunting hard, because I look forward to this time of the season every year and I also love to eat ducks. Or if you could apply this to pheasant or whatever game bird you're chasing that has a daily and a possession limit. Yep. Now I go out and I shoot my limits and now I'm on a five day trip in California and I'm like, man, I'm, I got my possession limit. I can't hunt anymore unless I have a grill or a way to cook them. Or a way to get rid of them. Or a way to get rid of them. Yep. No, I fully agree with you. It's one of those, it's very conflicting as a hunter, you know? So what do you do? Do you, you know, do you stop? Do you work? Do you take hours out of your day to go pound on doors and find people to give them to? Do you save the food pantry and fill them up with more snow geese than they could ever imagine? You know, it's tough. You know, you know, we hear all kinds of stories of birds getting dumped in a ditch and, you know, you wonder what really goes on. For me, I find it personally just, it's just different. You know, I always grew up, it was interesting, you know, when you grow up in the 80s and stuff, when duck populations were really low. A lot of our populations were low. Geese haven't exploded yet, anything like that. And it seemed like you plucked a bird, like you were mentioning earlier, old school. You make a big fancy thing about it. You know, your parents come over, you got candles lit to eat. You know, back when I was a kid, possession limit was six. You'd kill three ducks a day and you could have two daily limits. You know, so you get rid of a possession limit in one city. And no way you're going to have a party with 200 friends. So... Times have changed, you know, possession limits went up. Geese have possession limits that are huge, or they might be gone altogether for like mid-continent white geese. And so it gets conflicting because all of a sudden, you know, ducks and geese are a little different. For the most part, goose possession limits are huge, as, as big as they've ever been. Geese or ducks are about the same. But uh, yeah, I mean, what do you do? Do you just eat them like crazy? Do you gift them? You know, what are your options? Hopefully you're not throwing them away. You know, that would technically be illegal with some of these edible portion state laws now. To me, to me, it just seems like it, for it to even be an option, you know, in today's day and age, today's day and age, and I want it now I'm very, I just took a note that I'm going to go research this because I want to know if there are states in the lower 48 that you can actually throw away a mallard duck after you remove them from a field and and, and, and and take care of your want and waste privilege, you know, as far as maintaining that law or making sure that you don't break that law. Um, it just blows my mind that there could actually be somebody that could go kill a limited ducks and toss it without cleaning it, but I can't go and kill more than three times my legal limit and keep them in my freezer for a, a wild game feed at the Coney Island in February when all yeah. when I want to have all my friends. It just that's just really conflicting no, to me. It is. It is hard. Yeah, it's like okay, do you want to bend the rules so you can keep going, or do you abide by them and you got to slow down? Yeah, I mean, you know, you think like Canada, for example. Let's see. There's no currently there's no possession limits on white geese. But what do you do about the guys? You know, you're up there for a week, and snow geese. Well, you can shoot all you want, but hey, how about these cranes? How about these white fronts? How about these mallards? And it's like, well, you do have to stop on those. You know, snow geese. What Saskatchewan's twenty, Alberta, Manitoba's fifty snow geese a day, but all three of those have zero possession limits. You can keep going every day as long as you stop at their daily limit. But yeah, what do you do for the rest of the species? And, you know, that's something that's changed. I mean, you think about snow geese now, and we're probably pushing 20 years of these liberal regs. 
And there's, that's probably two thirds of the active hunters out there have never known anything different than that. You know, like myself, like I said earlier, you know, I grew up when duck seasons were talked about being closed because the populations were so low and, you know, limits were low due to that. And, you know, we still remember those days, but when two thirds of the hunters probably have never experienced anything but a liberal season, you know, they don't know, they haven't thought about that aspect. It makes it harder for them to get the rest of it. Now, Now I start hunting in September until season, there is a daily limit and then there's a possession limit. And there's all these, it's so hard to keep up with all of the different mandates and the federal stuff and the local yep. stuff and the state, state agencies. And, me, and Dave and I, I keep going back to Dave because he's, you know, he's very good to talk to about this stuff for me. And that's why I was asking you about, you know, getting new people involved is that I talk to a lot of people that don't duck hunt that know how much we're into it. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And one of the main reasons that they don't do it is because they're like, dude, it's just too much. It's like, first of all, the, the, the actual apparatuses that you have to have to do it, you're old school, but you still have a lot of gear. You're a gear junkie. All duck hunters usually are. So that part of it's tough for them. The investment's tough for them. Then you got the legalities of everything and knowing how to identify these birds. What, when can I shoot? Is my watch on? Am I going to get busted for shooting before the, you know, the shooting hours or after the shooting hours? And I'm just, there's little things like that one right there that I think you could remove and be like, Hey, we don't care when you eat your ducks. No. If as long as you're going out and ethically hunting them and you're cooking them up and eating them, no matter what time of year that is, I get irritated. I'll call Dave and go, dude, I need some mallards. I'm out. And he'll be like, I am too. And it literally pisses us off because now we're out of ducks come July or beginning of August and we don't have any other mallards to do any recipes with for the rest of the summer barbecues. Yep. Should have saved all them snow geese. Should have saved all them snow geese. So that brings my question is... You, there's a daily limit in the spring season. You know, those geese make that, that reverse migration back up to the breeding grounds and they get to Canada after they, they leave North Dakota or something. <clears throat> what is there limits on snow geese in Saskatchewan at that time of the year? Or is it unlimited like the States are? Cause I think that the United States is a hundred percent now, no limit. Yeah. I think I haven't done Canada in the spring just cause it's a muddy pit and I don't know when I, a quad, but yeah, I think it's unlimited as well. So why, why is it different? Is it because the fall season, you go in there, you got to have a plug. You can't use electronic calls. You might be able to in Canada, but in most states you can't in the, in the fall season. But then here we go into the spring season, and now you don't have the hat. You could have an extended magazine. You know, no, nothing, you know, you can do anything. There's no limit. So that's, that's simple to describe there. So what you have in the fall is a hunting season, and that goes from September 1 till March 10th, legally. That's a 100-year-old law. Then you have the spring snow goose hunts, the conservation order. It's a whole different environmental environmental impact statement was drafted and everything. Completely different package. Um, and so with that comes a whole different set of laws of which they open the toolbox wide open for that one because they don't have the same stringent requirements as you do in the fall. Does that make sense? 100%. Yeah. But what is the main reason for the spring depredation is it is it fair to call it a spring depredation season still or what's the what's what's the legal term legally depredation has a whole different word so i just say it's a conservation order okay so it's as simple as that why is there one mainly because in the early 90s some very famous goose biologists were really concerned with destruction they were seeing on the west side of hudson bay which at the time 
and still is one of the biggest goose studies ever conducted in the world, you know, La Perouse Bay area there. And, um, yeah, they were seeing destruction, you know, or there, the geese from grubbing were taking the shorelines inland five miles, you know, it, it just massive mud flats. They were going into the boreal forest and just nuking it. And with that, they relaxed these spring snow goose hunts. You know, notice like in the Pacific flyway, all our seasons end March 10th, because when they made those conservation orders in the mid nineties, um, I'm trying to make this more fun, but this is all technical. No, I like here. it. I want to know this. But, you know, in the mid-90s, just the three eastern flyways were like that because we were still stuck in really low goose populations. You know, um, white fronts were restricted, cacklers were restricted, brant emperors were closed. You know, all our geese were really hurting just for some reason. You know, our snow geese weren't doing that great. So we just weren't included with those. So, you know, with us, we don't have that conservation order. So that's why you see... Our seasons ends March 10th, even though we've got a lot of geese in the Pacific Flyway now. I mean, pretty much everything but Brant are increasing. And luckily, a lot of our state agencies have relaxed their regulations to maximize that. So you see, you know, like California, for example, has taken seasons and taken some days away to throw them way up against March 10th, you know, as late as they can. So... And I'd say almost every state right now in the Pacific Flyway has a goose season that will go to March 10th for you. As opposed to Mississippi or Central Flyway, where you can, hunt them in, you can hunt them all the way into May. Yep. yep. So you're saying that in if, if I see a big goose grind in Nevada on March 20th, I can't go set up and hunt them? Oh, no. It's no. done March 10th? March 10th throughout the Pacific Flyway. Yep. So in layman's terms, Nikolai... Why do they want to have a, le- a season in the spring where you can kill as many snow goose as you possibly can with no limits, no regulations on your choke tubes, extended magazines, electronic calling, everything that you can possibly do to get rid of some of them is what the way that I've always understood it. Is that fair to say, or is that not why they no, do it? No, that's exactly it. Uh, yeah, they're trying. Well, I'd say there's two things, and the Atlantic Flyway did this really good with greater snow geese is there's two things. Can you outright kill them or can you put so much pressure on them that you're sending them to the north in poor shape because they've been stressed out. People are jumping them. And with greater snow geese, they actually showed after those late seasons, the birds are actually going back leaner and in poorer shape to lay eggs. So it was a double whammy. One, you're, you know, flat out shooting them. And then two, you're impacting, you know, what they're going to do for next, you know, next breeding season. Okay, so... <clears throat> it's snow geese have actually plat- greater snow geese have actually plateaued out so i get on a good grind in october and the whole ma- the whole th- mindset is like snow geese are devastating the tundra the breeding grounds they're they're rooters so they'll come into a crop and just destroy it why would i not be able to stack them up in october if i if i if i have the ability and i know that you did there there is it's a true hunting season from mm-hmm. from you know through march and it's a hundred year old law, but the mindset tells me is that why, if you, if you're, you might not be able to have an extended magazine, you might not be able to, to use electronic calling Nikolai, but why, if, if it's a possibility to get rid of these snow goose, snow geese, why would you dictate it, dictate it of saying, no, don't do it in October, just kill your 20. They're still going to be messing up everything. And we are trying to get rid of them come February when they start moving back North in the spring. 
but you got to make sure you don't do it in the fall. That to me, again, that's backwards to me. Like yep. it, 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 it's almost like, well, they're okay when they're coming down. They're okay when they're coming down, but when they're on their way back up, you can, you yep. can kill as many as but you I can. Think a big one there is hunting seasons. I, you can't even think of a, I can't think of a hunting season without limits or yeah, without limits and rules, you know? Um, yeah, I can't think of anything. So that's where that conservation order is different. You know, legally it's different. And then also a big part with the CO, well, I don't think it's a CO, it's with these other ones that you have other seasons open. It's not just snow geese. So think about, um, and I'm trying to make sure I phrase this stuff right. So like in the Pacific Flyway, some states have rules against electronic things. You know, like Washington, I don't think you can use spinning wing decoys at all. Um, California is like December, I think. and Yeah, in California, you can't use recorded sounds at all in Oregon. But Nevada, you know, we can use recorded calls, you know, for our up till March 10th hunt. And that's because no other migratory bird seasons are open. So you look at like Idaho's regulations, they're also trying to hit white fronts. So here's Idaho, which boy, don't quote me on this one, but I know, I think you can use the electronic calls in the snow grease season, but not the white front season. So you gotta pay attention to stuff like that where you can't use electronic calls at all in California or Oregon because they're simply illegal. So, you know, it's just, there are, there is flexibility for some of those hunting season laws, but they might be governed by which state you're in just because they got archaic laws of no, well, I shouldn't say archaic, but they just have their own laws of no electronic devices. So it gets tricky. And, you know, that's where it's been fun as a hunter and a biologist to learn about that stuff. Because I grew up with all those same questions, but then you get pulled into the process and it's like, okay, that just, that explains why it's like that. So it gets And that's goofy. why I like, I like learning it because it does get goofy because to me, it's like in one sentence, you're talking out of this side of, not you personally, but they're talking out of the side of the face saying, we got to get rid of the snow geese because they're causing havoc. And then when they come down here in the fall and you could get on some hunts that you could really put a dent in them, because I don't think as hunters, we even put a dent in them with the, even with the conservation order. I truly don't think we do. We might put some pressure on them. We're killing more than we did when the, there wasn't a conservation order. It just is kind of weird. Another thing that kind of makes me go, hmm, that's kind of weird that if I get on a really good one in North Dakota or Southern Saskatchewan in October, and I really have a chance to quote unquote, put a dent in the snow goose population, I can't do so because I have to stop shooting once I meet my 20 bird limit. Yep. It's just, it's a, it's a weird mindset. No, it is. And you, you hit some things there and, and people hear it. Um, you know, some of those are pretty common themes that come up, but you know, another one that I hear a lot is how often does someone have a chance to clobber? And that one's hard for me to scratch my head on as well. Cause it is rare, but when you do have those days, let's say you have one chance to shoot your 20 snow geese one day where probably the average take of a snow goose by the average hunter is half a bird a day. Um, so you basically, in your one day, did what 40 average hunters could do. Now, granted, you're rare, but, you know, some of those analyses haven't really been done yet, you know, to really justify it. But then you also have, on the other hand, what would be the word, the public perception component of how many do people really need before we could get challenged with, um, 
you know, lawsuits and stuff, you know, from the non-hunting crowd. So there's always these trade-offs of, let alone the biology that you're bringing up, but also the reality of public perception. Right. So when you, when you start talking about the different limits and the different rules, different seasons, yeah. And the hunters have to know these laws and these rules and that, that it's their responsibility to get an understanding of the laws in each of the different states or provinces in Canada that they hunt. Yep. Or where you live too, you know, when you bring those birds home. So no, it all gets tricky quick, you know, and thinking, going back to where we were talking about, um, you know, eating food and people getting into it. I mean, that's another thing I see different is back when I was a kid, like I said, it was kind of a big deal to have duck dinners, um, you know, because the limits weren't that big. I don't think people shared as much back then because you worked for them and more people were hunting where now we share more, limits are bigger, and yet we still want more. So there's a big perception there where, um, you know, have they been... Have these conservation orders devalued wildlife? And we've had those those discussions before too in the wildlife professional world. Um, you know, and all of a sudden you take those limits away and just they're not valued as highly as they were before. You know, imagine if we went. You know, just a good example would be from those mid '90s where places like Pacific Flyway, I think, was four or five birds a day, and you could have eight or ten. Um, you know, you held on to those. You probably didn't share them as much. Where, you know, you compare to unlimited snow geese now, and I see people working hard in Canada every year and, you know, trying to get rid of birds so that they can keep going. So it, it gets tough. You know, and you, like you said, you got to keep up on the rules and knowing what's there and then, you know, just dealing with it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I don't, it's, it's, a cool conversation to have because I'm very interested in, in the whys. And, and, and you said something in there that just sparked a reaction in me is like, you know, we, we have all these liberal limits and we have all this equipment that we can go out and do this a lot easier than you could back in the day. It truly is. I mean, I hear a lot of old timers. I just hunted with a 88 year old man in Kansas last week that's hunted in 31 countries. And he said, these are the golden days right now. He says, this isn't the time to be a duck hunter right now. He hasn't just hunted 31 countries for ducks and geese, but big game as well. But his passion is waterfowl hunting. And when you hear that, you you kind of go, man, we're, we're lucky to be having it. So I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm coming off by saying, well, we should be able to kill way more snow geese in the fall. I'm simply asking if you can do it in the spring, but you get a chance to quote unquote, keep them under control a little bit in the fall. Why would we stop if you have a chance to really get into them? I'm not saying that I disagree with it. I'm just wondering the mindset when you set a law like that is if we're truly trying to control them more and get them in check, why would we not be able to if we had the opportunity when it's not during that conservation order season in the spring it's just the way i see it and i think that's why i wanted to ask you that yeah no and i think you hit it i mean there's a lot of these discussions been had with a lot of professionals as well and you know another thing that comes back is you know these increased opportunities for harvest with mid-continent white geese in particular they're not having the effect so that's where there is still that public perception where, okay, even though we've relaxed all these regulations and everything, it's not having this effect. So how could we justify even being more liberal? Right. You know, I think snow geese and Ross geese are still increasing mid-continent birds. 
by like astronomical numbers or is it small increases or is it something to where you can see like you can't even tell that we open these seasons up you know but that's a whole nother question in itself is you know how do birds respond to increased pressure and as we all know i mean snow geese 95 percent of the time are pretty smart you know they're so tough smart. so tough you know it's just you get those odd days where all of a sudden they're vulnerable you know they just you know, do you get a good wind day? Do you get a good wind, snowy day? You know, things like that. Do you get a beautiful, calm Sunday that some days we've, I've had phenomenal hunts where you set up that 1400 decoy and it's like, we're not going to kill anything. And next thing you know, everyone limited out, you know, right. just those weird things where they drop their guard and you can clobber them, but they're rare, rare, they're rare. Uh, it- you know, I don't want to stay on the topic of the legalities because I know you're a duck hunter and you have to follow the same exact rules that I do now, but your main thing in waterfowl hunting and in what you do is you're educated in biology with a special, you know, specialty degree in, in birds pretty much. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to get into that, but right before that, I just want to stay on the snow goose topic for just one second is this year in, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, we hunted both of those. We come down into the Dakotas, and I kept hearing from guys that, you know, were used to having way more success up there at that time of year in September and October. They kept saying, man, there's no juvies. There's, it's all adult birds. Just put your stuff away. You can't kill a snow goose this year. And there were some guys having little bits of success compared to what their averages were a year ago. Oh, yeah. It's it, probably it, the worst year ever recorded for that. Now, is that because of the hatch? Is it, is it, was it a poor hatch or what causes that? No, hatch, hatch actually was probably one of the best ever. It was the, I remember seeing a video on Facebook from someone from, uh, I think it was Rankin Inlet with what, 15 inches of snow, like the week hatch happened. And, um, yeah, I mean that extended all the way from the Yukon to probably Baffin, well, definitely to Baffin Island. Yeah. So it was everybody hatched and then those little fuzzy two year old goslings got 15 inches of snow on them. You know, and you can't see it. And they're eating vegetation, and they can't see it through the snow. So you're saying that they died off because of storms after the hatch? Like the day's hatch was happening, yep. So that caused the youth, the goslings, not to be able to mature and grow into a being mm-hmm. a first-year bird. Didn't let them even eat. Yeah. But they're out of the egg, though. They couldn't eat. They're That's dying. when it happened was right out of the egg. Damn. That it. first week. Okay, so. That's probably, what, three three near busts in the last five years in the mid-continent snow geese and Ross. Really? That's why they're tough to hunt this year. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, those older birds have been there and seen it. So the, the conservation order for this 2019 is going to be oh, hard. Yeah. This is, yeah, if, you, if the wife wants you to take her on a Caribbean vacation in April and May, this is the year to probably go do that. Okay, so now to transition that into lesser Canada geese because they have been hell for me mm-hmm. like i'm no, same thing I, I can kill a goose like you know no i'm not the best but chris i've been just aggravated with lessers this year from from saskatchewan mm-hmm. and i heard i heard outfitters in saskatchewan being like if it wasn't for the ducks this year we'd have been screwed oh yeah because the lessers were so hard and then i hunted them in north dakota and south dakota and then i got them in i was hunting them really hard in kansas and then oklahoma where i'm used to just three four five six hundred at a time oh yeah but usually i mean when you're normally doing that it's probably you know, at least 10% to maybe 40% juvies. You know, and with Canada geese, I mean, how good are you at aging Canada geese when you're hunting in the fall? I mean, they're not as easy as a snow or a Ross. No. You know, oh, gray versus white. You know, that's how easy those are. But Canada geese, 
yeah, I mean, most years you're probably, you know, the population's averaging 25, 30% juvies. And then, you know, they throw themselves into your decoys with reckless abandon, you know, but, you know, looking at that, like when I shoot birds, I'm aging them when I shoot them. You know, I keep a journal of what I shoot and I know how to age those, even the Canada geese that aren't hard, you know, like white fronts are probably pretty difficult too. I mean, when we were in Saskatchewan, we still saw juvie white fronts, but not as many as we normally would. But see, those guys, they're more variable in their breeding. You know, a lot of those will nest out of those high latitude areas. You know, white fronts will nest a little lower, so they didn't get hammered like the the cacklers, you know, like you were mentioning, the lessers and uh, snows and roskies. You know, those high latitude breeders. So long term, what does that do to a the population of lessers or snows is it is it going to take a couple of years to rebound from this or will they come assuming that we they don't get the 15 inches of snow on the breeding grounds right after the eggs hatch d- d- will they come back right away to where next fall you could be like oh there's plenty of plenty yeah. of juniors. i mean you gotta look at, you know that's all you know population dynamics that gets into all the math you know so think about geese they don't start breeding till they're two so we're talking you're talking about a reproductive bus that happened in 18 17 was probably one of the largest breeding efforts ever recorded because, you know, they're at all-time record highs. So imagine in the 2019 breeding effort, you're going to have a whole bunch of these massive production birds from 17 that are going to breed for their first time. They're going to breed like rabbits. You know, now, you know what, snow geese, probably 12% of them die annually from natural causes. So, I mean, they're down a little bit, but they're going to have a pretty good reproductive event potential next year and see what the weather does. You know, you never know till the weather happens. So now you've talked about snows. When you talk about breeding on snows, does that go for all of the species of snow geese, the subspecies of the of the Ross, the lessers, the, or not the lessers, but the, what are they, is it, there's a greater, a common, and a Ross? Yep, for, so for snows, you've got one species, you got two subspecies. you got graders and you got lessers. And then Ross geese are a separate species. They're a separate species. And then, yep. we'll, and then what are blues? Blues are just a color morph like labs. And it's actually the same genetics as a lab. If you know how to breed Labradors to get the right colors out of your next litter, it's the exact same Punnett square that you learned in genetics at one point for, for blue geese. Who learned in genetics? Oh, come on, you didn't take <laughs> genetics class? <laughs> well, I like when you start talking about pundit squares. I'm like, oh, yeah. God, I better stop this right but now. To be honest, if if you're a Labrador breeder and you understand how you've got, you know, the how to breed, you know, blacks, you can breed blacks and you can get any color because you don't know what's behind it. But, for example, if you breed a yellow with a yellow, you're going to get 100% yellows. It's the same thing with, with uh, snow geese. It's pretty cool. Really? Yep. Yeah, you breed a blue with a blue, you're going to get blues. You know, if you breed whites, you don't know what you're going to get. So a white goose breeds a white goose. They can throw blues. They could because it's just like a black that has a hidden yellow gene in but it. But not Rossies because Rossies are totally different Yeah, Rossies are very different. I mean, <clears throat> if you want to get into that stuff, I mean, it's a really fun story. Yeah, and you look... Yeah, and you don't have to go that far back. Well, actually, okay, here's a cool story. Because back in my day, when I was an undergrad, I was into dog sleds. I wanted to explore the Canadian Arctic, do all this stuff. Lots of fun. But, um, you know, getting into the waterfowl, you start reading these old stories. There's a guy named Dewey Soper. 
He spent three years in the early 20s in dog sleds looking for the first blue goose nest ever found. You know, there's a whole bunch of these expeditions for stuff like this. And I could share all kinds of, you know, there's the Brandt expedition to the Yukon Delta in the early teens where they recorded the first downy emperor goose, the first downy spectacled eider, you know, first samples ever known to science. And then you had guys like Angus Gavin that was in the Central Canadian Arctic looking for the first to find Roskies. Roskies used to be the rarest goose in the world before agriculture. And then you get like this guy, Dewey Soper, Canadian in the, in the 20s, and he spent those years, and sure enough, he finally found all the blue geese in southwest, southeastern Baffin Island in an area that's now called the Dewey Soper Migratory Bird Sanctuary. And he found them. There's a blue goose river. You know, I've gotten to band geese there. I actually had a blue goose decoy with me one year that I carved. We had him in the helicopter with his headsets on, and we caught a bunch of blue geese at the blue goose river and let them float in the river, threw them in a pen that was 100% blue geese. Because, you know, back then, Arctic geese were very restricted. You know, they were never as numerous like you said this is the heyday we've never had this many geese in the world and it's twofold biggest is agriculture agriculture released usually those the winter was the worst part for geese that's when they were going to starve poor body condition it was just tough times and then all of a sudden we got more corn on the landscape and soybeans than ever you know we were talking with clay earlier about peanuts in some places and you know, rice now, you know, rice is a huge topic for both mid-continent and Pacific flyway birds. And, you know, snow geese, white geese and blue geese were getting ready to diverge. You know, they were separated enough that they were getting pretty close to becoming their own species. And then all of a sudden this stuff happened and, uh, yeah, they're mixing again. You know, so all of a sudden you got blues breeding with whites and we get all these intergrades and now we're seeing blues all the way west to Wrangell Island. So, so <clears throat> there was actually expeditions done back in the early 1900s on wild geese. Oh yeah, and that was just that was back in the day where museums were huge. I mean, to be a member of a museum, you were high society, and that's how we were back in the 1900s, early 1900s, and. Yeah, I mean, like that Brandt expedition I was talking about, that one I'm more familiar with because I did a, I worked on the Yukon Delta for 15 years, and I read a lot of those accounts, but these guys, uh, Brandt was his name with a D in it, was from the Ohio State University. He took a train to Seattle, took a steamer up to, I think, Haines, hopped over you know, the Klondike Pass, and then caught, let's see, a train, I think, to Fairbanks, and then he took a dog sled from Fairbanks to the Yukon Delta, which is, you know, about almost what the Iditarod runs, a little bit further south at the end. But, yeah, I went out there to live with uh, local Native people in their homes and surrounded by birds, and that's what they spent their whole summer was just in an area scientists have never been before. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's what people did back in the day. Yeah. But but you say that they did it back in the day, and then here you are. You're coming up as a, a college student in the 90s, and I want to get into this now because this I think that it's very interesting on <clears throat> what you've done and what you've been able to accomplish in your professional life. And um, 
undergrad, you talk about you went to college and did you already know when you went to college that you were going to specialize in birds and waterfowl? No, I didn't even know you could be a biologist for a career. I mean, we grew up with guys like Marty Stauffer, for example, you know, making those awesome videos when we were a kid. I mean, I watched those. Those things were phenomenal back in the day. And it's like, ah, oh, that guy just does it for fun. You know, he's just some crazy guy that's doing this, but I like watching it. And then, uh, yeah, I went to college. I wanted to be a pilot and I made it about three weeks and two things happened. I tell this story often, but I was at an ice cream shop. I was going, I could have gotten into any college I wanted to, but I picked a spot where the hunting and fishing was the best in Minnesota. So I went there and, uh, yeah, I stopped by an ice cream shop one day and there were guys next to me talking about, uh, finding a deer kill from a wolf and breaking the marrow open and measuring the marrow. And I'm listening to this. It's like, you guys do this for a job? And they're like, yeah, we're wild, wildlife biologists. You know, we worked for Fish and Wildlife Service back then. It was before USGS got split out. And it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I walked away and I found out later that was a famous wolf biologist named David Meech. He's like the world's expert on, on wolves. And then it was like the next day I walked by a classroom at the college I was going to and a whole table full of duck wings. And I've been into ducks since I was about eight. Yeah, it's all I've thought about since I was eight, but I had no idea you could do this as a job. And I talked to that professor. I'm like, what class is that? And he's like, oh, wildlife management. So I signed up, went in the next day, and labeled all their wings correctly for them because they didn't have all of them right. So, yeah, I mean, it's all, it was pretty neat. And after that, it's like, oh, I'll get a two-year degree in this and, you know, yeah, my kids asked me a couple years ago, you know, when they were starting to get into school, how many grades did you go to, Dad? And I tell them, oh, about the 25th. <laughs> and they freaked out. So so, so you're you're in college. You, f you figure out that there is an option for this. You, you threw this wolf biologist and this leading expert on wolves, and then this classroom, you walk by with these duck wings laid out. Now you graduated from a four-year school, and you say, now I'm going to go get my master's? Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. I mean, you know, it's just like anything in life. Uh, do you have a mentor or, you know, someone that tells you how to do it or do you figure it out yourself? You know, there's, you know, everybody probably uses a combination of those same two. But, you know, my parents didn't go to college. They were happy to be able to pay the bills and feed us and put clothes on and didn't really know about these, you know, lack of better words, quote unquote, fun jobs. And you have to work hard, but you know, and sometimes you, you do, but some you gotta be really, stuff. but you gotta be really educated. Like you have a master's and then are you a PhD too? Yep. yep. So you have a doctorate in what? Wait, 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 yeah, before basically that. Basically Arctic geese. Yeah. What, what is the master's in? Arctic geese as well. Yeah. I did my master's and PhD on black brant nesting in Western Alaska. So. so you go in with a thesis that you have to, on black brant, you have to go in and prove this how does it work to, when you're going for a PhD, you have to go in and you have to, you literally get sat down and you have to explain to this panel of people, right? They're just oh. hammering you oh, with you questions. Get, you get, well, it depends. There's another thing too, you know, every university's different. And like when I was in Fairbanks, I did my master's there. I mean, it was competitive. I mean, even for a master's degree, they beat the daylights out of you. But every university has different requirements. My yeah, we experience that. Yeah, you got to take tests, written tests, oral tests, then you got to write the thing up at the end and they can beat you up then. And, you know, it's kind of a hazing ex exercise. It's a little bit of hazing, but it's also just to keep you on your toes and make sure you're learning more than just coming in every day. 
So your undergrads in Minnesota, then you go to the University of Alaska at Fairbanks for your master's program. Yep. You you graduate with masters in 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 Arctic geese, yep. wildlife biology. Yep. Did you have it? You had a thesis to prove and 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 argue there for a master's, and that was in in Brant's? Yep. And then you come off of that, and you're like, all right, well now I'm really educated because a master's degree is legit. But now it's time to become a PhD, which is a doctor. You have a doctorate. And you have to go in and now you, you have a panel of people that are sitting there and you have to prove or you have to argue your thesis, right? And defend it. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to discount your thesis based on what you presented to them. They have a few days to read what you wrote up and you're sitting there going, no, no, I want to I, I learn about like what kind of questions are asked. Are they, are they, is it all science that they're asking about or is yeah, it? For the most part. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like one question I got in a, part before the end had this closed door meeting you're supposed to know everything like anything and one old professor that's still around he's retired a while ago but he asked me like one compare the uh circulatory system of mammals against birds you know you got to go into the whole thing you know hemoglobin's different and all this stuff you know all these things you've read and read and read i've read a lot you know it's how much can you retain you gotta be a sponge you got to, and there's some pretty smart people. I mean, you know, graduate school isn't for everybody. I and mean, when I got into like wanting to get a two-year degree, I was looking at the jobs. It's like, yeah, well, you can make, you know, back, you know, let's say 1993, you could probably make $5 an hour installing signs and spraying weeds. But it's like, well, I want to catch ducks. Okay, so you got to keep going a little bit more, and you get to a four-year degree, and it's like, well, I could probably catch some ducks making $10 an hour now in the mid-90s. It's like, ah, I want more, you know, and it's, it's everything in life. You know, when do you draw the line and you're happy with what you got, you know? So I just kept going and then it went forever. It went way too long, but I had fun. I went way too long, but so I put it this, I mean, I spent 15 years of my life working 15 different years on the Yukon Delta in Alaska, just there, let alone all these other places. You add up the amount of time. In those 15 years, I have six years where I lived in an Arctic goose nesting colony in a tent. You know, I woke up every day listening to Brant and Cacklers and White Fronts and Cranes and Lapland Longspurs and Bar-tailed Godwits. I mean, it's it was awesome. You know, back when I was a kid, I, mean, I got paid to go live in a tent in the Arctic and fill up data books. It was awesome. Doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. It's so like, I'm just like sitting here like in awe of like, when it's, you know, like it's human nature when you meet somebody without really getting to know the substance or, or what really has gone on for them to get to where they've gotten or just being able to sit down like this and learn why you are so, you know, uh, you've, you're an elite, you're a leading authority when it comes to this stuff. And well, I just got a different perspective. I mean, keep in mind, you know, I got into all this stuff from hunting. You know, and the reason I got into hunting is because a neighbor kid down, my, my family hunted, but the duck hunting stuff ended just a couple years before I was born. You know, they still did deer, turkey, squirrels, doves, stuff like that. But, um, you know, I'd seen that. And then a friend down my street, his family was full born to duck hunting. And I'd go to, you know, I'd see their brushed up blind in the early, you know, mid 80s, which wasn't, you know, they weren't fancy blinds like now. These are guys that made it themselves. Everybody had to make their own stuff back then. And so there's a big old brush pile going down the road and I'd ride my bike down and 
you know, pull out all, they'd show me all these different ducks. It's like, holy moly, you know, look at that. I mean, even at Gadwall's, tertials are just gorgeous. You know, you see a wood duck and you've never seen anything in the world like that. And uh, so I just, my uncle and I started doing it on our own. You know, we didn't have a mentor. We jump shot ponds for four years and it's like, hey, maybe we should buy some of those decoys and got into that. And then it's like, well, these decoys are ugly as hell. It doesn't look anything like a real bird. Let's start carving. You were you were literally addicted to birds, is what started this entire thing. I just wanted them in my hands. You just you was it's almost like you're it's almost like you're this mad scientist kid of being like I'm going to figure out every single thing there is to figure out about a bird, mm-hmm. and that's what is that's where you're at today. Being what you are as a biologist now, it all started because you were addicted to birds, yeah. not necessarily a mallard. You love to hunt, but it wasn't necessarily just a mallard or seeing a duck fly or cut could, the wind. I could go to a park any time of the year and feed mallards bread. Yeah. You know, that's, as you know, I find mallards, you know, please forgive me, everybody, but I find the most boring bird in the world. Really? You know, it's, I'll eat them. I mean, they fly by. I'll shoot them in Canada. We don't shoot them. I let the dogs and the kids chase them out of the decoys. But, yeah, I mean, it was all, I wanted to see different birds. And then, you know, you start reading you know back then you had encyclopedias you'd go to the library and see the nerd journals on the shelves you know journal of wildlife management you'd start reading that stuff and just like anything you read something you get more into it then i'd start going to these scientific meetings and stuff and then you'd meet some of those people that read those and you know you'd be 18 and it's like hey you know can i ask you a question and you know it's some famous guy that's published 100 papers you know and you start knowing those guys and then all of a sudden they drag you into grad school and it's just this unending process. I mean, you know it, you're, you know, you're well into your career as this. You've met a lot of the has-beens, well, not the has-beens, but the people that have been there and done it for a long time and they brought you along. I'd imagine, you know, you had some mentors along the way and it's fun when you finally get to meet someone like that that helps drag you and propel you to make yourself better. Yes. You know, well, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're up to your ears and your career. It's a know? sickness. Like it almost became a sickness to you to get, to learn as much as you could. At the same time, honing your hunting skills and becoming a very proficient waterfowl hunter to the point to where you have the goal to say that mallards are boring. Like you've 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 done so many different waterfowl hunts in so many different places of the world that you are one guy that will sit there and go, "Well, mallards really just don't get me that excited." Real quick before we move, keep with the education part of this, is your uh, your your comment about letting the dogs and the kids chase mallards out of the decoys? I assume you're in a pea field or a dry field in Canada. Is it because they're so uneducated and so easy to decoy at that time of the year that it's not even sporty to shoot them? That you'd rather let them mature a little bit? No, no, it's not that at all. It's for me, um, you know, you know, going there's so there's so many parts into that question. You know, like we were talking before about possession limits and what do you do. Simply, I either eat them or I move on to a different species. So for me, when I'm in Canada, we're mostly killing, the number one birds we're killing are cranes and white fronts. So that's what we're eating. You know, we'll eat four or five a day so that we can shoot more the next day and keep going. Because I don't, I don't gift birds to strangers. We all do it different, but that's just one of my personal choices is I just don't do that. I mean, if someone asks me for a bird to share, I will, but I don't go out you know, I just draw the line and quit and keep eating. So if I'm only going to bring home 24 ducks, I'm going to bring home something cooler than a mallard. So usually, you know, I'm up there. As I mentioned, we started going up 94 or 95. 
And between when I was 14 and 24, I ended up making 48 canvasback decoys myself. And we'd take them up there, and that's what we did. We'd shoot canvasbacks over hand-carved decoys. And it wasn't until our fourth year, it's like, maybe we should start doing these geese. You know, let's get some goose decoys and give this stuff a try. Because we were just looking for something different on our trip. And, yeah, even to this day, those group of 48 canvasback decoys, and if someone shoots a canvasback over those, they get to sign them, too. So, like, these decoys have signatures, piles of signatures from professional biologists, friends, landowners, anybody. So for me, it's kind of a fun thing where if I can only shoot 24 ducks while I'm up there, I want them to be canned. So I'm just picky. I'll shoot mallard. If a mallard flies by me here, it's going to die. Cans are good eating though. I like cans and they're pretty. Beautiful ducks. And keep in mind too, as we were mentioning, you know, in the mid nineties, when I was just getting into this stuff, they were closed. You know, that was a bird that was closed for like 12 years. It was the regal bird of them all. And when they reopened either 94 or 95 people celebrated, you know, it was a huge conservation success. You know, they were finally opened after all those years you could get on them and I'd never shot one before. So that's why I carved those decoys. I was carving them while they were closed just because they were cool. Do you still shoot cans over them? Oh yeah. I shot cans over them last week. I'd like to do that with you one time. No. I, my goal right now is to sign one of those Tell decoys. Dave Stanley that. We've talked about it. I got John Carrington out over him a month ago. So. I'd love to do it. I would. Yeah. I, my goal now is to sign one of Chris Nikolai's. <laughs> so I've got lots decoys. of different species, but now, yeah, almost anyone's in running with my daughter because she's signed almost all of them now. Okay, so some questions that that I that I go through my head that, that I've never probably should take the time to learn it on my own. And maybe this will be good for people to understand some of these questions. But I, I think that that waterfowl hunting is so like it's my favorite form of hunting just because of what we're talking about. All the different ways to do it, all the different places to do it, all the different species, all the different ways to call them or decoy them or jerk line, whatever it is. And I and I'm always mystified by the this part of it because it's almost like I missed it. And that's why I'm so humbled to be able to sit down with you because growing up and you get in that mentality of we got to get our limits we got to stack them up we got to do this it's hashtag this and it's so refreshing to hear guys that are so down to earth and with your accomplishments and doing it that i think it's very important for somebody i'm not i would never ever say like you guys need to do everything like chris nikolai does and i know that you're not that way either different different and i think that that's what's awesome about you nikolai is that you you just have an approach that's very intriguing that it's almost like do you do you go out and buy the newest and greatest decoys out there in a spinning wing decoy and go out there and do what everybody else is doing in duck hunting? And I say yes. If it's what's going to get you into it and keep you into it and let you have success and create memories with your kids and your wife and your family and your friends, then yes, do it. Then you sit down with a guy like you and I'm sitting here going, God dang it, man, I haven't really done shit when it comes to duck hunting because you're making canvas back decoy. And again, it's not for everybody. It's what you do might not be for me or my brother or anybody else that I associate with. I got a text this morning from a kid that returned one of my transmitter canvas backs that I put out. And he's like, Hey, I see you do decoys and stuff. I'd like to do that. And I gave him some websites and some decoy carving stores that are around, you call these guys. And he's like, it's a lot of money to make a decoy compared to buying plastics. It's like, well, yeah, you didn't think so? So, yeah, I mean, it's all different. But you keep in mind, you know, I came from a different generation. Like I mentioned, you know, where you could, you know, I remember going to stores, say, 90, 
and you'd go and there's flambeau and there's carry light and that was about it and you know they had like three or four carvings that were painted as like 10 different species i mean they were ugly they were using mallards and painting them as widgets you know or there's a generic scop body that was painted as a redhead or a ring neck or a golden eye and it was ah you know and that's what got me into it or like i was mentioning you know blinds if you wanted a good boat blind you couldn't go buy a duck water or banks or a tdb or something like that i mean you had a normal boat and you probably built stuff out of plywood and it was heavy and chicken wire and you know it worked you know we're now it's just how society's changed. You know, you could go out now, and if you had enough money, you could go out and have the fanciest stuff of everybody and have the biggest, baddest setup ever. But it's all, you know, how we all personally prioritize stuff. You know, I like having that stuff. You know, and something else, as you were mentioning, you know, thinking about all that hunting, but then I'm a biologist as well, and you were mentioning all these different, you know, spinning wing decoys and gimmicks and, you know, the newest rage and all that, but I also spend time catching birds. And that's a heck of a lot harder, you know? So that's where I spend nine months of my year, eight months, eight to nine months out of my year, and then the other months hunting them. And, you know, I've gone all over the places to go catch stuff. You know, I'm painting my own decoys and going to Iceland with some other biologists because they can't catch birds. And they're like, you think you can catch them? And I fly over there with 30 Brant decoys or barnacle decoys that I painted. And we go over there and we're catch, we catch more in one shot than's ever been done. You know, that's fun too. So, yeah, as you said, you know, I just live and breathe that stuff year round and, you know, have fun. <laughs> Is it unethical to hunt over a stuffer rig? No, God, no. If you're that crazy to do something like that, go for it. I mean, I've thought about it, I've never done it, you know, and all my decoys aren't carved, you know, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I probably assembled most of mine you know when i buy socks and stuff i'm a cheap guy i'll get the ones you have to assemble and paint them and sure i'll paint my own blues and juveniles with my own stencils because because i'm a decoy painter you know but i don't buy the fully you know ready to go socks you know so it's kind of fun but you know i've thought about like cranes for example oh i save skins and skins of cranes to make stuffers and i never did it you got to take care of them Here's another one, you know, how does that count when you go back and forth to Canada with a stuffed bird? Does that count as a possession? So now all of a sudden you're dealing with these laws as well. So I just threw my arms in the air and, you know, bought these nice crane decoys that are coming out now. Most expensive decoys I've ever paid for. But, uh, you know, we're all different. You know, and like I said, you draw the line at, you know, how much of your income are you going to spend on this stuff? Why would you shoot a crane? Because they are yummy. Is that the main reason? Yeah, well, are they fun? Oh, they're a blast. Why? What? What does it do? I've never done it. Tell, tell really? me. Really? You've it. never shot a crane? I've been invited fifty times in Texas and all over huh. that Oklahoma. Just they're upset. just a different. You know, they're not related to waterfowl. They're actually a coot or a rail. They're, that's their closest relative. So I mean, they're just different. They're awesome to eat. They're a different possession limit when you're in Canada. So for us, you know, we can go fart around with them for a few days, and you know target those guys so. why are they good to eat what is different about their meat are they vegetable i mean what is what makes yeah. them like i think I've it's, just, it's a different texture you know the flavor is pretty similar but i think it's just a different texture you know where waterfowl are more really fine muscle fibers you know almost that's why people say liver i think because you know but you get a crane and it's more textured and marbled like a like cat like uh beef really you know you cook it and 
you know, different ways I do it. I mean, geese and ducks will do it occasionally, but cranes all the time. I mean, you can just, it comes off in shards and strings, almost like string cheese because there's so much fat in there. Oh, they're, they're just a different bird. It's almost different. like a, it sounds like Wagyu beef. Kinda. Oh, yeah. Horrible. I mean, cranes are <laughs> excellent and they're challenging. And, you know, they're a bird you can't get everywhere. They're not a big Canada or a, or a mallard, you know, so you got to make a concerted effort to go crane hunting. They say the crane capital of the world is like right in central Nebraska, right on the I 80 corridor right there around. Oh, yeah. But Nebraska is the only mid continent state you can't hunt them. And they all congregate there. So yep, that, along that, the Platte River. Is it a big breeding area for them? No, nope, it's a big staging area. Staging They're area. also high, high latitude breeders. I mean, you got when you go there to the Platte River, you go west. Ah, I got to remember my Nebraska geography, but you get west like towards Lake McConaughey, and you go east towards like Bow Island and places like that. It's pretty cool too. Um, you know, they've done a bunch of telemetry studies where as you go west, those are actually Russian birds, and as you move east. Those are like Ngava, Hudson Bay kind of birds. So it's pretty neat as they breed from east to west, but as they migrate down, they stay segregated and come on down that way. Yeah, cranes are cool. And they're old. I mean, they're one of the oldest lineages of birds out there. Has there always been a crane season? No. No, they were closed for quite a while. They got hammered. and uh, But they were probably one of the first unique hunts that was reopened. I don't know the whole history on cranes, so you know when they open but i'd have to guess they've been open since the 60s or 70s at least is it is it challenging like do they decoy do they see decoys and they're in or is there is it does it take realistic calling do you want them on a sunny day is it, is it do the same duck hunting you know like if it's stormy are they tough do they see better when it's a low ceiling and cloudy are they pretty sharp with their eyesight i mean what? Yeah, no they got really good eyesight um yeah i mean you nailed a bunch of stuff there i mean it's all different i mean do you just a lot of people pass shoot them crane decoys have been hard to have i mean for years all they were were like repainted lawn ornament great blue herons kind of stuff and then some other decoys came out and now you know there's a couple makers of top end crane decoys now that are accurate and realistic and you know there's some good calls coming out now and you know it's just like anything technology changes i'd say cranes are probably the last now well for a common bird, you know, still, I mean, I did see someone's making a long-tailed duck call now, so that's impressive. I haven't heard a commercial eider call yet, but, you know, like I said earlier before we were talking, my daughter's the only person I know that can call emperor geese, so, you know, when are we going to get emperor goose calls? She sounds a lot like Katie Stanley. She's pushing her for emperors. I'd, I'd be willing to bet, and I've met Katie a couple times, but I bet you Grace might beat her on the emperor call. I didn't wow. show you that one. I could show. I've got it recorded right now, but I can show you after the discussion as well. I, I need to see it. I don't. None of us can figure out. Do how you she blow does calls? It. I do. I'm not a big caller. Um, you know, like we've talked, I'm more into decoys, and I'm a diver hunter, and so you don't really need them a whole lot. And you know, when I go to Canada, I call good enough that I feel like a rock star. I mean, I get geese coming in just as good as I could ever imagine. And I don't get a lot of opportunities in the pacific flyway to hunt geese just because it's so hard to access land so for me killing geese i fill up my freezer in the fall in canada and i shoot a few around here and get some invites but yeah i'm i'm not a crazy into calls i've got them i'd give myself a five what is the prettiest 
vocabulary or sounds in your opinion what species what do you like to hear the most out in the marsh um is there something that you just go yeah that that resonates with me like when i hear a hen mallard just i I get chills some people like that widgeon whistle or that sprig whistle or some teal popping but is there something that really like makes chris nikolai go crazy no i'd say for calls it's again just like birds i'm more of the birder and that type i like the odd stuff you know you hear those funky you know of a, of a swan out in a marsh, you know, that's, that's cool. You know, that subtle stuff that most of the people don't even hear it. Or, you know, you're out somewhere. My uncle and I were hunting canvasbacks in Saskatchewan once. And, you know, I saw this very dark and white duck just come out of nowhere. And it got over the decoys and it was two feet high still. And it just pulled its wings in and kersplat right into the water. And, you know, and my uncle's like, what is that? And I just got up and I walked out in the decoys and didn't give him a chance and shot a really nice long-tailed duck that, you know, he'd never ever heard one or seen one before. And yeah, I get in, it's all the something different. The boring, I shouldn't say boring, the common stuff just doesn't get me as excited, you know, but you get some of those subtle calls and it's, it's fun. So what if your, what if your kids want to get into the competition part of it? Would it be something to where you would, call Dave and say, Hey, I would, I'd like to, you know, they're interested in this. No, it'd be fun. So far I haven't seen it. Um, the emperor goose stuff's more tongue in cheek. You know, she's calling, none of us can figure out how she could do it. She grabbed my white front or I bought her a white front call four years ago and she's never made it sound like a white front, even remotely. You know, she doesn't cup the end of the barrel, nothing. And she just does whatever she does. And four years ago, I'm like, that's an emperor. You know, and then all of a sudden now, you know, last year was the first year he could hunt emperors and we're into the second season right now. And well, it actually just ended yesterday and, um, yeah, all of a sudden she got to put it to work, you know? And it sounds dead on like an emperor goose? Dead on. Really? I've caught thousands of emperor geese. I've lived around them and yeah, she hammers it. Can she do it with volume too? Can she get pretty good oh, yeah. volume on it? Why do you call speckle bellies white fronts? Yeah, I like that. That's one of my pet peeves. So, um, yeah, to me, you know, imagine I, I worked on the Yukon Delta and we've got white fronts and we got spectacled eiders. To me, a speck is an eider. So, I mean, if you're out there and you say, hey, there's a speck, you're going to confuse. That, that's an eider where I grew up talking about. So, to me, I mean, he's like, okay, there, we saw five specks over there and six white fronts over there. You don't, you know, what do you say? You got six, six specs over here and six specs over there. So do you know how it got, how that term got coined with a, with a white front goose? We, obviously it's because of the bars on their belly. The speckle bellies? Yeah. Yeah, obviously there. The white front is the white around their base of their bill. I mean, even their Latin name is uh, answer albifrons, which means goose with white forehead. So how do they get called speckle bellies? Do you know? No, it's just like sprig. You know, whistlers, butterballs, it's all just slang terms. But for me, as you, yeah, as you picked up, you know, I kind of, I'm a little more formal with that kind of stuff. Just because I'm a biologist as well. Well, you're a nerd. You're a duck yeah, nerd. Exactly. I mean, you know every single thing there is to know about it. What is a black duck? It's a species, for sure. Not very far removed from a mallard. Where are they? Are, are they East Coast? Are they, yeah, e- are they Atlantic and Mississippi flyways. They're a, so they're a mallard? No, I mean... That's been an argument for a long, long time. I mean, genetics for them, I think, show that they're actually closer than, 
I think cinnamons and spoonies. Shovelers, so yeah, I mean they're very, very closely related to mallards, but you know, genetically they are distinct enough to be their own species for sure. Have you hunted them? Yep, banded more. <laughs> banded more. How many birds have you banded? You think? I'd be willing to bet waterfowl pushing two hundred fifty thousand. Wow. How many have you harvested? Banded birds, probably two fifty. Two hundred fifty banded birds. Someone asked me to count them up a couple months ago, so I did a quick tally. Do you have them on a lanyard? Do you have them on mounts? Do you have them just in a bucket? Yep, they're in a cardboard box in my garage, and I'm probably missing half of them. Don't care? No, I reported them. Yeah, and it's, it's just a piece of metal and a piece of plastic. I mean, you and I have talked about this stuff before a little bit, but, um, you know, I don't get, I definitely get excited when I get a band. You know, it's fun. You know, you see the dog bringing something in. It's like, whoa, it's banded. Look at that. Or... You know, like last year, I shot my first canvas back in ever, first banded canvas back. And I've had several of them shot over my decoys, but never by myself. And it was me and my youngest daughter, who was eight at the time. And her and the dog were sitting on shore. Wetlands were shallow that year. So I had to stay out in a layout boat. And she ran the dog from me from shore. And she was falling asleep or in the truck drawing. But the dog stayed on shore. And she'd retrieve all my birds. And once I knew I knocked my eighth one down I stretched my arms so I've been laying in a layout boat for an hour and go back to shore and sure enough the dog had them all in a pile and start going through it's like whoa this one's banded so I didn't even know which one it was and yeah I mean that was that was pretty cool you know bands tell stories you know CWA wrote a really cool story about a specific Brandt band a few years ago um that day I shot that canvas back was the same spot my dad shot a banded scop like two years prior and both of them were banded in the same place in illinois you know it's kind of a cool story so to me they're more they're storytellers what's the most distance or what's the most you know like band that you went wow that's amazing like that like i've heard of some being like banded in russia and, and harvested in louisiana pintail and yeah. have you what's your or better yet what's what's the one that you banded is there a story behind one of your bands that was harvested somewhere that you couldn't believe it or that blew your mind or anything no i mean they all move i mean i caught i think i'm the only person that's caught one of the japanese banded pintails i caught it out of carson lake like 10 years ago what maybe 34 have been shot in north america but as far as i know i'm the only one that ever caught one um no i mean it's all it is what it is. I mean, you get old ones like Brant. We've got several Brant right at 30, if not slightly over 30 years old. And we've got 25 years of breeding records for that Brant. You know, I don't know if you see on Facebook, but there's that old albatross from Midway Island right now. What's their uh, wisdom? I think it's its name. You know, that thing's what, 60 something years old and has bred 50 of those years. I mean, that's the stuff that gets pretty neat to me. Very neat. Yeah, I mean, the movements. And you'll get an oddball every now and then, but we've been banding birds since the 30s, so, you know, most of it we know, but it's always cool to hear that snippet of some goofy exception that someone banned or someone recovered. Um, did Dave show you this the other day when I sent that to him? Nope. That's pretty cool. These, these guys have a company down in California called Bird Dog Waterfowl. And they sent that to me through social media. And obviously your name's on there. It's a gadwall and banded in still water. He's got the certificate in there. I sent it to Dave to send to you. I should have just sent it to you myself. But um, P. 
people get fired up about jewelry and bands and I've heard of people that like, you know, scope them out. They'll see them. And there's, there's been a lot of discussion on why they don't put as many neck collars on because of people knowing that that bird's banded and being able to shoot them with a rifle from the road. I've heard all the different things that have happened. I've been with people that look at are looking for bands on legs as they come in, or they'll let a bunch of birds land and look through them. And I've always thought that that's not why they bought they that's not why they do it. Mm-hmm. It's not for a trophy. Now it is if you're lucky enough to get one. I understand that, and you know, reporting it the right way and and getting your certificate. But does it bug you at all when you hear stuff like that that people seek them out? Um, that people are actually trying to find them on the ground and light a bunch of birds to kill a banded bird. Is that, I don't know if you can answer that or not, but it almost seems to me like the banding initiative obviously is close to your heart, but it's so, it's so important to what we have accomplished as conservationists and scientists and biologists and, and understanding the flyways and the migration routes and being able to set daily limits and possession limits and 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 can we use a spinning wing that all that has to do with the studies that are formed and and and, and take and der- derive from a banding initiative is that fair to say oh yeah no, so I does it bug you at all when you hear people doing it for the wrong reason <laughs> excuse me no it definitely Drives me nuts, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You know, we had an article, what, four or five years ago in that Wildfowl magazine that we covered that pretty pretty well. And, you know, for the most part, there's not enough people doing it on certain species. But then you get, you know, other species, excuse me, that, you know, it could definitely skew some results. I mean, we're dealing with some analyses now where we're trying to deal with that with some of the species that are easier to target you know and it you know as you mentioned it informs a lot of our science and we're obligated the states the feds by international laws to make sure harvest is sustainable and so i'd really you know people can go tongue-in-cheek however they want i mean i've heard everything but you know there is potential to skew your hunting seasons by by doing that stuff. There is the potential. Does it come up? I don't know, but there is potential. And banding data is the best set of data we have in the waterfowl management community. Can we talk about the, the wood duck banding program that mm-hmm. you do? Where did it come from? And this, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's always interesting to me to hear where you did it and i think a lot of people would be interested that you where you do it and where it takes place and how successful it's been did it come was it through a study or were you asked to do it because of your job or was it something that you came up with no it was actually bill henry was uh the biologist out at stillwater at the time he's since retired but uh you know i got here we met quickly because he did his master's on brant he knew i was into brant as was my advisor so we start talking and He's like, let's start something here. It's like, where? I've never seen a wood duck. I've lived here a year, and they don't know. It's a desert. And he's like, well, come on out. So I go out, and another gentleman out there had put up wood duck boxes years before, and Bill had been checking them. It's like, oh, okay. And we banded, I think we banded the 14th, 14th wood duck ever in Nevada that first trip, and we probably did 20 that day. And, uh, yeah, it just kind of exploded. You know, it's like, okay, well, let's do this and let's do that. And then I got funding for this and funding for that and a bunch of partners and everything. And, yeah, the biggest thing was, you know, here we are studying them in western Nevada, which is known as, you know, high desert or the 40-mile desert, whatever you want to call it, or the oasis of Nevada. And, yeah, that ended up being pretty cool for doing uh, 
really need in-depth student or in-depth projects. And uh, yeah, the third graduate student I've had on that project just defended a couple weeks ago. And yeah, it's a project all people know, biologists all over the world know about it. Just because you were studying them in a location that makes them really easy to study. We call it like studying them in a fishbowl. You know, it's, it's hard for birds to move to other places. They don't. And, you know, with banding, what the goal is, is to put a band out and see it again somehow. So either does someone shoot it or do you recapture it or do you recite it? You know, there's no point in putting bands out unless you're going to see them again. That's why it's so difficult in most situations for non-game birds to be studied with bands because it's hard to re-encounter them. Because they're not being hunted. Yeah. I mean, Europe actually is pretty cool where they actually find a lot. People like looking around outdoors more and report bands. So, like, they do studies on raptors and passerines and shorebirds, mainly because people find them dead and report them just like hunters do here. So, no, no, the Wood Duck Project here has been a grand success. So, give me, give me one thing that you've learned from that either one of you or your graduate students are in your findings and your studies and your projects. Is there anything that stands out that you've learned? I mean, the biggest one we did was the harvest experiment. Um, You know, we're due to the appearance that like 83% of our recoveries come from the same county. I can't think of another species anywhere that's like that. So it suggested they don't move a whole lot. And uh, talking with the state biologists and then the state wildlife commission, we actually set up uh, a multi-year experiment where for that one county we tweaked hunting regulations to be too conservative or too liberal and we looked at what the response was and you know basically said that you know in these systems that uh environmental cues drive what's going on not our harvest regs so it's pretty neat we'll be one paper's been published so far and a couple more have been out but couple of the wildlife magazines you know like delta in particular is really you know they wrote a whole article yeah yeah it's been a good success do wood ducks migrate usually yep and they do move here as well but yeah you get east you know say anywhere north of missouri and they will migrate because they're frozen you know people in minnesota are ice fishing now there's no wintering habitat for wood ducks, tons of breeding for the summer, but they move here. You know, we've got wood ducks in the Pacific Flyway up to Calgary and, you know, Okanagan areas and BC and stuff, but those all freeze up as well. So those birds move, but, you know, we've got birds here that stay year round. They move a little. We got birds in California that don't move. So, yeah, I mean, all depends on where you're at. Is there, is there, when you have a study like that and you you talked about living in the tent and waking up every morning with the birds, do you get so attached to them? Let's take the wood duck project, for example. Does it almost get to the point to where you're like, I don't want to hunt wood ducks? Do you, does that ever go through mine or are you like, I'll, I'll shoot a wood duck if it comes in? Oh, yeah. No, that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, it's not like, you know, they're my little buddy pet or anything. I mean, I might see a bird every year for eight years. Like I have... There was one bird on the Brant colony that I think the first time I saw her, she was 20. And uh, 20 years old band, and you look at her, she was banded as a gosling, so we knew exactly how old she was. We even knew which nest she hatched from, and yeah, I think I got pictures of it on its 21st through 27th birthdays. 
Yeah, it was kind of fun. That's cool. And then that bird just disappeared one day. No one shot it, and it just probably died of old age, you know. But, um, you know, like that CWA article, we had a bird. We had a technician die one year, actually committed suicide on the project for some mental, some unfortunate mental health issues. And she was a friend of a lot of people, including the local hunters. And one guy started donating money to uh, buy the bands every year. And so that was pretty cool. You know, he's doing it in memory of her. And uh, I don't know which, it's been a couple years now since we had it in the CWA magazine, but super nice guy. And they were all black bands that started with a heart. There's like 550 of them. And uh, we put all those out, and one of my really good, you know, one of the top three waterfowl photographers in the world came up, and he took a beautiful picture of one standing next to a nest with that band on, so I blew it up and sent it to the guy that donated the money for those bands, and, you know, it was a big 16 by 20, framed up nice, he had it in his office. And it was a couple years later, he called me one day, he calls me almost every weekend during brand season, and he's like, hey, uh, and you could tell he was broken up, and sure enough, he shot a band that weekend, and it was one of those bands that were dedicated to her, you know, started with a heart. And uh, he brought it to his office, sat down in his chair, and he looked up, and that picture that's been framed on his wall for two years was the exact same band that he was holding in his hand right now. Really? Which was crazy. I mean, what are the odds of that? Yeah. Not very high. Yeah. Yeah, CWA did a huge article. Well, I wrote it for him, and they put it out but that was really cool you know that's one of my favorite band stories i love what what species and, and and age is the is there do you know which one's on record as being the oldest species recorded and what the age was ever on all birds for a banding a band turned in well i'd have to guess that that um albatross is pushing it but no you can find that stuff out online but i've never looked up the oldest of the old i mean for us it's the geese because they live longer I think there's some 30-year-old canvas backs, you know, but the hard part is, too, like we're dealing with some analyses now. I mean, we've gotten some pintail recoveries in the last couple of years that were banded in the 40s, you know, so it's all okay. It's easier these days to report bands, so maybe someone's finding grandpa's band in his drawer after he's dead or in some box and figured they'd report it, but they messed up while recording, so we got to follow up on you know, some of those, or you find one out in a marsh. And like we found a pelican, or one of my colleagues found a pelican band out on Anahoe Island, out on Pyramid. And yeah, that thing was put on in like 1934. So it's like, okay, did it live till last year and died, or did it die the week after it was banded and just took someone this long to find it? So, you know, there's always, you know, that's why sometimes when you do shoot a unique band, the bird manning lab asks for some follow-ups, you know, just to help validate some of this stuff because we don't want a bunch of made-up data you know there's a lot of people that don't take that stuff seriously or like to screw with people so you know we try to filter that stuff out as good as we can do you do you think that with the banding initiative the way it is that it's worth every i mean talk to me about the education process of what banding tells tells a a biologist about a certain species or, you know, some kind of scientific data that's, that's out there that you can, you, your studies have proven and that you have found out through the banding initiative. To me, it's something to where, obviously we have a company called banded and we named it after banded mm -hmm. after the banded bird. And it's very synonymous with waterfowl hunting. And I'm getting back to my question about 
why have, you know, this has become kind of a trophy deal. And I really want to get the message out there, Nikolai, is that it's so important to our heritage and our lifestyle. And, and what we get to do is a waterfowl hunter in America. And I'm just talking on a very small part of what birds are. There's a lot of things that go into, you know, that don't include hunting, you know, but hunting is very important to the banding initiative. Like you said, because we can recover those bands to get the scientists like yourself, the information they need to help these species out and help them thrive even more or whatever the case is is there something that a duck hunter that just you know can do without having to go to a college campus and get involved into a, a biology um, deal can he call a chris nikolai or contact a, a biologist in his area and say man i'm really interested in this banding initiative or is it better just to go onto google and type in the word banding and read about it i i'm i'm always been into it i've been on a few of the banding stuff in nevada plus other states as far as you know, the roundups go and putting bands on the birds, it's very, very interesting. But I think that as I travel the country, I've never heard somebody really talk about what it's for. That's always about that piece of ba- that metal or on their lanyard. And it's almost become a trophy. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I want to get the point across is that the banding initiative, and we do have a company called Banded, and it's, you know, you read, the, you see this name Banded on the front of a magazine right here. It says 2018 banding. People might think of our our company, but that's not what it was for as far as it's not a trophy to me. This band is not, I'm just like you. We'll go out and kill eight bands in a season. I don't have any of them. I love giving them to people as long as they understand what it's for. Is there a message that we can get out? Like, Hey, here's what we can do, or here's what you ought to be looking at more importantly than a trophy. Mm -hmm. Is, is there, is there something that a person can get started with or what's what, I don't know if I'm rambling on that. It's just, as I listen to you talk, I'm like, man, I go across this country and I hunt in a lot of different States and I see a lot of bands killed. And I don't think that anybody ever really, it, it doesn't resonate with them. Like, man, this is really important to what you're, right. what you want to do for the next 50 years of your life. If you want to continue to do this. Yeah. But I'd say, you know, the big thing is just get out and see if you can go help. It's, you always learn so much more when you go out and do it rather than just read it. But to be fair, you know, like I'll take almost anybody out. CWA has some really neat programs where they get people out banding. But I know some other states, and I won't identify them, but they've had some really bad problems where they've, you know, even the people that they pay to come out and help them band, bring their buddies back, and they hunt the same lakes they're banding on so they can get bands. So that's a problem. You know, we don't want... We don't want that kind of stuff going on. But I do take the approach, you know, and I work... You know, out west here, we have to ban the same places we're hunting. You know, they go hand in hand because we're limited on water, you know, on water out west. So, I mean, there's no secret spots we can go to. So, I mean, they're all the same. So, I'm pretty relaxed about that. But, you know, we all spend money on licenses. And, you know, at least me, when I'm buying a license, I feel like I'm giving something back to the resource. Or, like these days, I'll buy two or three federal duck stamps just because I know it goes somewhere and... I can afford it these days. You know, I'm not a 22-year-old college student anymore eating ramen noodles for dinner. You know, it's like, oh, I'll buy three of them this year just because I feel good about it. And I know it's going somewhere good. I truly believe that. But, you know, while I'm spending this money, it's like, okay, what is it going for? And like morning doves, for example, we used to do surveys that would take a lot of people that counted birds differently uh, in different places, and, and we used a lot of those call count surveys to manage doves. That's how we knew how many there were. We were legally fulfilling obligations to show that we're not over-harvesting these birds. 
because we can get challenged in court all the time. We have been for almost every waterfowl species over the last few decades. So that's where we're spending our money is to legally defend the ability to hunt. And so mooring doves, for example, about eight years ago, about that, changed to where we're managing them completely off banning data because it's easier to do. There's a lot less potential problems. And now, you know, a bunch of us put dove bands out and hunters report them and that fulfills our legal obligations. So imagine, you know, if people stop doing that or make data up, you know, it can really skew stuff. You know, it's, I just don't get the messing with data part too much. You know, targeting bands plays into that a little bit. And, you know, if people want to read that wildfowl article from a few years ago, we deal with that a little bit. Um, but then you get stuff like Arctic geese. They're really hard to count. Um, you can't cover the Arctic and count them in the breeding areas because it's just prohibitively expensive. I and mean, we're spending $10,000 a day for a helicopter in the Arctic. And the Arctic's very wide, so you'd spend a lot of days. You'd have to have multiple helicopters to get it all done in one breeding season. But then they've tried counting them in the winter, too, and it's really hard to count large numbers of birds. We've done studies that show the bigger the flock gets, the more inaccurate people are. You know, we'll have people, 10 experts fly over, get all their numbers, and then we'll get a photograph of the flock and some undergrad will spend three weeks counting each of the dots and get a real number and they're different so with a lot of the eastern three flyways and a couple in the pacific flyway we're estimating them from banding data you know so i don't know did you ever do any experiments back in high school where someone would give you like a jar and try to estimate how many beans there were mm -hmm. yeah so you basically have an unknown number of beans in a jar take out a handful, put a Sharpie marker on each one. That's like putting a band on them. Put them back in the jar, shake it up, and that's like letting migration happen and a couple months go by. And then you open the jar again and pull another handful out. And there's some that have Sharpie markers on them and some that don't. And you can actually do a simple math equation to estimate how many beans are in the jar. You know, Plus you can estimate plus or minus how much you're off. So that's how we're, we're doing a lot of that stuff. So here, you know, we're all buying licenses. We all want hunting to continue. And, um, you know, I'd say just stay honest, um, you know, and have fun. Enjoy the resource, but, you know, help contribute to the cause rather than make things get goofy. Because we got to spend more money to deal with that. You know, like one example is we know not all bands get reported for whatever reason. I mean, some people lose them. There's conspiracy theories of, you know, they're going to know my secret hunting spot, you know, et cetera. But, you know, we're all have a common goal of wanting to keep hunting going. And if we don't have the best data, we got to spend different resources to get it to a better thing. So if we keep it simple and keep it honest, it works for everybody. Agreed 100%. And I saw I saw a picture the other day online, and you don't have to answer this or even talk to me about it if you want, but I wanted to tell you my opinion on it. In case you care, Nikolai, these guys are, had some success on a hunt. And I see this a lot with what we do because we're filming with these high-end cameras now that can record things at such high speeds that you can slow it down into really picture-perfect, crisp, clear, slow motion. It really bugs me a lot. To see, you see the 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 energy of those pellets go into the bird and what happens to that bird it's very sad in a way i mean we're hunters i'm compassionate towards that bird that's why i take such 
you know, take it so serious when I'm doing it. And I don't like them being, you know, put up, put out there to see just because of a death aspect or, or getting blown up by this ammo that's so technology, technically driven now that it's so much better than the steel shot was in the late eighties and the nineties. I mean, you could, this, this ammo we're shooting now is it's, it's easy to harvest a bird if you get them into range, not taking anything away from the hunt. I'm just talking about the actual bird. I saw this picture online to where they, they had some, they had some ducks. They, it wasn't a, it wasn't a normal, you know, stack them up picture to where you would take. And I'm all about that. If you have a good pile and you want to take pictures for a memory of that hunt, I'm fine. But they're throwing the birds through the air, you know, like throwing them. And, and the captions are really like really degrading, almost like they never saw it coming and all this stuff. And I'm just like, that really bugs me when I see that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that I'm a bet. I'm maybe I am matured a little bit. And I think that where I'm going with this is, you, if you can start to see at an earlier age, let's say you start duck hunting when you're eight, like you did. And as you start to get into your 15 and then you're 20 and then you're 25, I understand that it's, you, you're going to go through that stage in your hunting career, man, I want to kill a limit. We got to kill, we got to get a good picture. We get all that, but that's not the same as disrespecting the bird and throwing them through the air and letting them land. And, and I, I just want to get the message out there that it's not on a soapbox. It's, it goes along with the same thing that you're talking about, that there has to be an utmost respect for these birds yeah. or we're going to lose it. And I think it starts with little things like don't overdo the murder part of this, the kill part of it, the, the, the blood hungry, blood thirsty. It's okay to throw these dead birds that had just went through hell. They thought they were coming in to see their friends and they got shot in the face. And now you're going to take a picture of you guys throwing them like they're nothing, like they're just a football. Is that on a high horse to say something like that? Or does it, would it bug you too? Does it, does it hurt you a little bit to see birds when they're treated that way? No, no, I think you're hitting, and it's something I talk about a lot. That's probably one of my more common ones you know just in this day and age of politics and ethics and all this you know if things gotten worse or if we just gotten older you know when you're younger you don't pay attention to politics or the details but as you get older I mean you and I are probably pretty close to the same age but you kind of start getting into the grumpy old man and getting critical just like your dad and grandpa hopefully smacked you in the back of the head a few times as well and that's where you know Ethics, you know, a a good definition of ethics is what would you do? How would you treat the situation if no one was watching you? You know, is it legal? Is it not legal? If it is legal, is it really ethical? You know, and that's just, especially being a a parent, um, you know, and hanging out with a lot of younger people and seeing stuff like you're commenting on or getting into how you treat bands or treat meat or whatever. It's just... You know, we all grow up, you know, and were you a good kid when you were younger or were you not? Were you supervised? Did you have a mentor or were you not? You know, there's probably a million different variables to feed into what you've turned into. You know, it's as simple as that. And, you know, being was a guy on that 70s show, that Red Foreman guy, you know, he he'd smack those kids around. He was on them all the time. I think we need more people like that. You know, like I mentioned, when we go to Canada, I don't let my kids watch DVDs. I want them to do wholesome stuff. You know, am I a dork? I don't know. But I don't, I don't want my kids to grow up to be what I consider a punk. You know, definition from everybody. And, you know, yeah, I do see that stuff. I mean, I've, I grew up from a reloading family. Uh, my parents and grandpa were competitive skeet shooters. And so I was always 
around ballistics and understanding how shot shells work and what chokes do and, you know, how you choose different shells. So to me, when I see people, you know, blowing ducks up and laughing about it and stuff, I mean, it's just like, yeah, that, that's not my kind of thing. And if I saw you, I'd probably give you some grief because that bird's inedible. You know, you just completely... You know, like you said, I mean, these birds, their parents had to survive to breed. They had to survive the red foxes and skunks and tractors that could impact their ability to hatch this nest. This nest hatched, and then the ducklings made it and all that. I mean, it's all, take it for what you will. I mean, you know, am I bleeding hard? I don't know. But, um, you know, there's a respect for that stuff. I mean, and all of us are different. You know, we were watching a show with the kids last night where they were, uh, in Asia somewhere taking bets on rustling or uh, fighting rhinoceros beetles. It's like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I didn't really care, but why is that different than all the stuff we've heard of like dog fighting arenas and stuff? It's like, yeah, okay, these guys are betting on little beetles, but how is that different than a dog? You know, there's 20 different reasons why it's different than a dog, but still there's some ethics involved there. And, you know, would you slap your dog around dealing with duck hunting and stuff you know we're all different and again it all comes down to ethics and what we've been taught and what we've thought about and how we influence the world around us so i think it's as simple as that it's ethics i think it's morals it's, it's it's very well said and a great answer and i think that you know i want i want i don't want people to think like hey you know our kids are better than yours or we were brought up different than you i'm just saying that there's little simple things that could turn somebody off if they saw that they they're going to have an argument like that's not ethical that's not nice that's not what a hunter stands for right we're supposed to be compassionate and 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 willing to give and and bring new people hunting and we're not supposed to disrespect the animals that we chase now i'm not saying that I'll, I'll, I will ethically and legally shoot a duck every single time I am able to do so as a duck hunter and enjoy every second of it. I enjoy shooting ducks. I enjoy killing a deer or, or predator management. I'm never going to back away from that, but I'll be damned if I'm going to throw those birds around like they're just garbage or show on social media, how big a hole my pattern put into a bird's breast and I'm that, 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 that I just hope that people understand or the earlier they in life, they can realize that it's way bigger than them or me or you or anybody else. This lifestyle is humbling and we're not entitled to do it. We're actually blessed to be able to do it the way we are. And when I saw that, I honestly wanted to contact them and say, are you freaking kidding me? Oh, yeah. well, but think- then I would be the bad guy because I'm oh. overstepping my boundary. Like what you're saying. You, and, and I get that part of it, but the sooner a guy like you and your message is so legit or a guy like me that has the platform that we do can say, Hey, don't throw your freaking birds around like they're garbage, respect them until you clean them and eat them oh, yeah. and then keep respecting them. Even after that and give thanks at that table, the night you eat them for being able to have the chance to go out and do what you just got to do with friends and family or your daughter, or your son. Yeah. That's, I think it, it all comes down to just, and I don't think society's changed that much. I mean, you always hear the doom and gloom, but there's always been, you know, there are gangsters in the 30s killing lots of people. I mean, we've always heard, you know, we don't have to go into the politics of gun issues at all, but there's always been bad things in the world. And, you know, it all it all comes down to what you consider is right and what I consider is right, you know, as a society. And Yeah, it's... But then do we still have, like I use that example, the Red Foreman guy from that 70s show, you know, do we have people slapping us in the back of the head, calling us dumbasses anymore? 
or have we gotten soft to that? And you yes, know, we as, have. yeah, as you just mentioned, you, you're up for getting online and calling people dumbass, you know, calling them out. And personally, you know, as my own feeling, I wish we'd see more of that. I, I, mean, I, I wouldn't do it and hide behind a name. I wouldn't hide no. behind a code name. I would say, look, huh. through my travels and what I've learned about this is it's way bigger than being a 22 year old kid throwing ducks through the air. The sooner you realize that and get to the real reason why we're hunters and that we get to hunt again, Chris, I'm not saying don't pile them up. I'm no. not saying don't chase a limit once in a while. I'm not taking any of the fun out of it, but there is a certain amount that I heard Rogan one time talk about this video that he saw about this, a, a big game animal that got hit and it's bleeding out and they're showing all of this. And I'm like, through the power of editing, you can control that. Now, is it realistic that it's going to happen? Heck yes. I understand that we're going to shoot a duck once in a while, no matter how good our patterning is and our choke tube and our ammo in the combination of those three, we are going to have cripples. It's nothing to laugh about. It's not that you sit there and try to shoot them again or, yeah, you try to dispatch them as fast as you can, but there's a certain w- w- ways to take care of a cripple, meaning, you know, a good dog going out and having a well-trained dog that can t- to take that down. I just think that there has to be more compassion in the education process of hunting that it's not about being a world champion duck caller, which is awesome if you are. It's not about being an Olympic shooter. It's not about having the baddest ass boat and the best trained lab that's worth $30,000. The number one thing that I, I see out there that bothers me the most in what we get to do is the ethics part of it that we are giving the other side ammo on us when we're sitting here saying, hey guys, this is, this is our lifestyle. Oh, this yeah. is what we do. We need to educate people on that. And I, 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 I probably do sound like I'm on a soapbox, but when I saw that picture... Your voice got really loud the yeah, last 10 minutes. Like when I, but when I saw that picture, it just irked me because mm-hmm. I was like, they actually took the time to not just take to throw the ducks through the air, take the picture, write the caption, and post it. They did all of that. They had plenty of time to think like, well, maybe this isn't a good thing for our lifestyle. Well, I mean, it's just, you know, like I mentioned, I mean, my folks, I grew up... I know what patterning was and chokes and different weight, you know, different loads and stuff to do what the job required. And I've had times where I didn't shoot a bird because they were too close. Or if they're coming, you shoot out there so you don't blow them up. And, you know, that's another recent pet peeve of mine, mainly because of, you know, some friends of ours out by Stillwater that have showed me what small loads are capable of. Because I've had kids that wanted, you know, my kids wanted to start hunting as soon as they could. So, you know, they couldn't hold up guns. And now, you know, like my daughter, you've probably seen some pictures and she's shooting a 410 with hand loads. And, you know, she killed her first swan a couple weeks ago. Dave Stanley was there when she shot her first duck when she was seven, flying out of the air. You know, and that's because we've learned, you know, exactly like you mentioned, we're not shooting 1993 steel loads anymore. We got options out there. I mean, you got stuff from steel all the way to TSS. I mean, you've got the ability to load this, to load that, to do this choke. Now, what I'd love to see is like the old poly chokes from the 70s where you could, you know, look like a big dill pickle on the end of your barrel and, whoa, they're farther, so you could tighten it down or, oh, these are going to decoy. Now, yeah, that's a pain in the butt and the poly choke didn't work as good as we thought, but boy, if you could have some dynamic choke that would help you, that's about the only thing we really need right now because sometimes they won't come in as close as you were hoping or this flock came in way too close but if they're too far you don't shoot if they're too close you should have shot earlier or shoot them when they're backpedaling like i saw a video like you mentioned last night now it's safe but it was a goose that came in really hard on a water setup right over the top right over the top yeah they shot it probably 
four feet from their barrel, they took the head off. Yeah, that's an okay shot. But, you know, if you're doing that day in and day out, whacking them right in the middle of the breast, yeah, you've got some ethics issues. 100%. Well, yeah. a, a, a close-up shot's fine by me. If you've, if you've honed your skills enough to get them there, like you're saying, backpedaling birds, and you can get them to where you you harvest them ethically and they die. But with that, I'm not using my past <laughs> shooting choke. I'm using my decoying choke because this choke. is what I'm expecting. Yes. You know, yeah, if they're... If, your plant, if you scouted this mallard spot and there's mallards, 10,000 mallards on a two acre pothole, you don't go in there with an extra full choke with, you know, really hot shells. You should be going in with an open choke and probably you could probably back down your, your pellet count a lot, okay. you know, you know, okay. so it's different. Um, you know, and that's what we're learning. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Like I said, I mean, I've taken reloading for granted cause it's been around my whole life, but I shoot at paper. I shoot at gels. I change chokes. Guns are different. You know, I, I know exactly when I'm taking my daughter out, what shell we should be using to give her a chance. You know, and some of them are more expensive than others. So there's the trade-off for us is against cost. Yeah, I mean, I could load some shells up for her with TSS, but, you know, those even in a, you know, in a 410, that's still running me 45 bucks for 25 shells. You know, and then the stuff doesn't pattern worth a crap. So, I mean, she's not going to hit anything under 40 yards because her pattern's about as big as an arrow shaft. But at 40 yards and out to 70 or 80, that's a wicked friggin' load. You know, it's one of the up-and-coming loads for turkey hunters. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's all this stuff learning. And I think we've got so many things, going back to your ethics stuff, we have so many things in society, you know, demands on us. You know, do you have to be a geek like you and I to just throw your whole life into this and then ignore the rest of life? Or are you more like the general population where they only have moments for all these activities and, you know, they read an article here. This is what I shot. So they shoot this all the time or, you know, and this is where it gets hard, you know, with our sponsors and things like that. You know, what is honest out there? You know, do you really need the fanciest shell to get this done? I mean, be honest. I shoot the cheapest shells. It's a very rare collecting style trip that I'm going to buy the premium shells, but that's me, you know, and I'm happy. I know what they're fully capable of and I'll run into people who are like, how'd you pull that off? It's like, cause I've been doing it forever. Yeah. You know, you just started hunting and I, I better be a better shot. You know, just like catching birds. I can probably catch a lot more birds cause I've done this a lot, you know, things like that. Oh, I agree. I've seen it. Like you, you, almost assume to a fault you know like hey you know we do this so much and i get invited on so many cool hunts and get you know the ability and the access to places to where a lot of people don't i'm I'm humbled by it i'm not i'm sitting here going wow this has got to end sometime but i also hunt with a lot of people where i automatically assume like man this if i can do it you can do it and then you watch them and you're with them and you can really see that there is a a huge gap between different parts of a hunting career like uh, some some guys might just be starting and then the guys have been in it for a little bit and i watch them and you 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 don't ever want to say that your way is the right way or your way or the highway but you can give them a little hint here and there but i'm talking from calling to shooting to calling the shot to concealment to decoys and uh, you you have to appreciate and respect everybody's thought and their and their ideology on it but I see a lot of things where I would be like, why would you ever, ever do that? Why would you ever do that? Why? I run into that. I love hunting with new people. I, Me too. I really do. And same thing with banding with people. I mean, I learn stuff all the time, but it's exactly like you said. It's like, ooh, 
I like that. Yep. You know, and, you know, as long as it doesn't involve their secret spot, I'd say it's usually quite open to borrow a technique or steal a tech, you know, be honest, steal a technique. But yeah, don't steal people's spots. That's a whole nother topic there. But then the same thing with banding, you know, it's like, holy, you know, like the first time I used helicopters in the Canadian Arctic with the Canadian Wildlife Service, it was like, holy schmoly. I mean, in the Yukon Delta, we used boats and you ran and you swam and worked your butts off. It's like, well, this is the way to do it. You know, and yeah, you sometimes you're like, oh, I'm, I learned a lot. Or it's like, well, I thought about doing it that way. And now that I've seen you do it, I'm glad I didn't waste my time and effort to try that because it doesn't work. You know, and that's how... That's how we are. You know, you should be able to learn from stuff and have mentors and friends. And that's how we work, you know. I think that I think it's both sides. Like I learn from people on how not to do something. And then the mm-hmm. next day I'll go, wow, why haven't I been doing that more? Like I love when somebody like my buddy Mitch Yoder in Kansas, he's he's probably 30 now. And he's just an awesome Canada goose hunter. He's applied himself like Tyson Keller, who you've heard his name in the snow goose stuff. I'm sure he's probably the best Canada goose hunter that I've ever been around or ever hunted with. And I'm a sponge. I'm like, man, I wonder why he did that with his flag that way. That's not how I do it. And then I'm like, oh, that's why that makes sense. And you learn from it. And I, I, I think that coming out of the, you know, a, a background that I did with athletics and discipline, like my dad had and your dad had, I think the most important thing is to learn every day and be teachable and coachable. And I think that that's a trait that waterfowl hunters have to have is that you can't go into this as a know-it-all. You can't go into this as an egotistical person like, man, I'm going to smoke them today. We, st- we stacked them up yesterday. Yeah, you stacked them up yesterday. It might be 10 more days before you see one. You better get ready for all of the things that can happen in this. And there's a lot of things that can go wrong and there's a lot of things that can fulfill it in a heartbeat as far as the passion of it goes. And, and there's that's the reason we do it. But you can't just rely on, man, I'm the best duck caller. I'm the best shot in the world. I just piled up these mallards right here. Like you said, a mallard's got a brain this big. No. I say it all the time it's not that hard to kill a mallard duck it's it's awesome it's a but but ton of fun to go out and decoy a bunch of buffalo heads on the Truckee river it's not that hard we're not we're not operating on somebody's brain here nikolai we're not doing things that are take a lot more skill i'm not saying that it doesn't take a lot of perseverance or a lot of tenacity or intelligence to be a good duck hunter and continue to get better at it but it's all i always go back to hey we're, we're killing a bird with a brain that big. Let's yeah. not overthink it. Let's just not get ego about it. Go this. out and have fun. Have fun and enjoy That's it. That's what it is, you know, and it takes it takes a while to grow up, you know, and hopefully you don't get in trouble and do some really bad things while you're growing up. You know, that's what mentors are for. Yeah. And, you know, red foremans and dads smacking you in the back of the head calling 100%. you a dumbass. And, you know, you get a lot of kids that don't have that and you feel bad. I mean, any level of development, you know, professional career, you know, dating, whatever, you know, you gotta, you sure hope people have guidance, but not everybody does. Um, but that's why it's great to have guys like you and a Dave Stanley that continuously put effort forth to mentor, to get new people. It's what you're supposed to do when you get older. It's what you do. It's what you have to do. And I talked to Dave about that is that when do you know in your hunting career, even before you have kids, well, am I, is this still all about me and my buddies? You know, camp has become so much more to me with the group of people that I surround myself at all these different camps I go to. Lots of kids around, lots of women around, lots of memories and stories and just fun stuff that you wouldn't normal if it's just a bunch of dudes out there doing what we did when I first started duck hunting, which wasn't that long ago. I've only been in it for 20 years. But you, you really start to see, like, when is that is the time? Mm-hmm. 
to make that transition from being oh, all about all myself. Yeah. It, it might take me a little bit longer than it did you. you you're taking your kids 90% of your hunts and a new kid and their friends and your wife and all this, 90% of your hunts. Mm-hmm. I might not be doing that. I'm taking kids and people that are new, but I might not be doing it 90% of the time. I still enjoy getting out there. I'm not saying me, I'm just using that as an example. But it, there's there's that time in your career where you're going to be like, you know what? I've been there. I've done it. I've seen it. It still excites me, but there's more to it. Yeah. than me decoying another duck and killing it. There's, well, and that's, you know, listening to you talk, I mean, for me, I mean, like you said, we're all different too. And, you know, keep in mind, you know, we've talked, you know, I've gone to school, I'm a little bit nerdier than the others. And I've been into it forever. But, you know, even during college, I could see the competitive crowds and that wasn't my scene. You know, I, I knew, I mean, I could decoy birds regularly. And, you know, it was to the point where people would follow me. I mean, where I grew up is one of the most competitive waterfowl hunting places ever. And uh, you didn't even talk, I didn't talk to my best friends during duck season, you know, and I got burned on spots a lot. So I just learned to shut up and just go. And for me, it was even back then, it was like, I'll take someone new because they don't have decoys. They don't know how to do this. And I don't have to worry about them stealing spots. That's where it really came up for me. So, you know, I've been taking people a long time and I still had good times with my friends on big trips, but, um, you know, there's always, you know, potential goofy things that could go on. So it was weird. I kind of did turn into a quiet duck hunter and there's years I probably spent 70% of my hunts just me and my dog. Cause I didn't want to deal with that goofiness, you know, people stealing your stuff or stealing your spots. And you, you've never, you've never had that personality to be the guy that's going to say, you know, look what I did. You've always been informative in education, it, being able to educate people. But that's why I wanted to sit down with you is because I, I there's got to be something, a method behind the madness, I bet this mad scientist that has achieved everything. We haven't even got into it. And I do want to do this again. I've already asked you if you'll come back because I, I talk a lot. I have, I want to, I want to have a very in-depth conversation. I want to get into more. But that's where really where I was with this, Nikolai, is like, man, I want to be educated and I want to be just, I guess the right word is motivated. I want to have some inspiration from guys like you that make me see different parts of this lifestyle that has become so important to me. And just going out and killing a bunch of speckle bellies or white fronts in California isn't necessarily the best thing for me anymore. I love it. I enjoy it. But I'm more into now how can I get them plucked? How can I pluck them? How can I, yeah. how can I use these different approaches? To, well, to me, to, it's, you know, we've talked about it before. I mean, I mean, I used to have the bloodthirst, you know, how many can I kill this year? But I was, the thing I always got stuck on, I've never wanted to push birds on people. So I always, you know, I ate them like crazy and it's tough. So to me, it's like, okay, how many do I really need? You know, and I do keep in mind, I mean, I had, some coworkers a couple of weeks go, Hey, you know, Chris, you know, you always give us some of this. You got some, it's like, yeah, you know, I set some aside knowing you guys would come, but you know, I'm not, I run into the traveling hunters a lot. And for whatever reason, people don't think about taking birds home. You know, you get on an airplane, you know, you got to haul them with a wing, excess baggage is what anywhere from 25 to a hundred bucks, an extra piece, you know, and coolers already weigh enough before you can start putting birds in. It just goes, it blows up on people quick. And, you know, I'm just, I'm personally, I'm not comfortable with pushing birds on people. Like I said, I mean, I've been in Saskatchewan before where I've run into a burger joint and someone will pull up, hey, are you hunters? 
yeah, you know, you got any extra birds? And it's like, you know, this happens maybe every other year. And yeah, we'll empty whatever we have in our truck at that moment, you know, and that's great. You know, you feel good because people come up, but, you know, personally, I just have never bought the case where I'm taking them to the food shelf and I'm going to save the world. You know, I don't, I don't know. That's just not what I personally do. You know, whatever other people do, whatever, you know, as long as it's legal. But to me, it's just how much do I need? I mean, I don't really want to be eating ducks 250 days a year, 100 days a year. Yeah, that's probably perfect doable. But, you know, we're making sausage. You know, we just did a bunch of corned recipes. You know, having all these guys making recipes and getting them out there is huge for our world right now. I mean, we're eating a lot of neat stuff that we never heard of before. And, you know, again, it just... We're all different. We all have different personalities. You know, I'm a quieter guy. You know? I'm not. Yeah, no, I, w- I wasn't going to say that. But yes, you're you're a lot louder than me, and I'm quieter. But we're both into it. We're both into following laws, and it's just what makes us happy. And what are we looking for next? You know, I mean, for me, getting into all this, I just wanted to see all the birds, all the ducks I could see. I know that's what's close. so cool about it. You know, and what, I think I was 20 when I said I saw everything in North America. This year I banded, now I can say I've banded every species in North America, and I still have three left to shoot, you know. And to be honest, the three left to shoot, I'm kind of doing it just to close that list. I'm not really too excited. I'm actually a little nervous of how I'll feel, you know, will I lose some of that drive? I don't no, know. I don't, I don't think you will. No, I mean, but you it's hard to know. say, but you never know. And I, I don't think you will. But can, can we do this again? Can we sit down again? Because I oh, do man. have a lot. I got two questions, and then we're rolling. Okay. If if you did come back to do this life ain't for everybody podcast again, after what we talked about today, what would be a good topic or two that you would want to discuss? that I might not necessarily know that you've experienced or what you think? Is there something that stands out to where, um, is it another banding initiative? Is it another species of bird? Is there something that sticks out to you that you, that's really a hot topic for you today that you do want to, to get more word out there, get a more messaging out there on it? Is there a topic that pops off the top of your head? I'd say the biggest topic we have now, there's two. One is conserving habitat. I mean, we got more and more studies coming out that habitat is what drives these populations, both positively and negatively. Um, we got to think of ways to secure funding. You know, we're losing hunters. Um, land is costing more to conserve and everything. So we got to get creative because I think the model we've been using for 50, 60 years isn't working anymore. So I think that's a big one. But hand in hand with that, the second part, is how to get more people of the general public to think about wildlife. I think that's huge. You know, we're becoming more urban. Um, You know, it's just fewer people hunting. You know, how can we get these other groups in? I mean, birders, non-consumptive users are someone we should, you know, join hands with somehow. How, I don't know. That's what the topic is, is. Like the Autobahn? Groups like that. I mean, Audubon does pretty good, um, you know, for conserving habitat and stuff, but we always have this rift. I mean, people are probably listening right now going, oh, you know, Nikolai's a tree hugger. He wants to join all these. I mean, no, they're actually, we have common goals, common objectives with those groups. We like birds. And that's where we got to join forces a little bit more. And 
swallow some of our pride, but you know, both sides and go for the better good of just conserving habitats. I mean, we're showing with our data from surveys and banding data that harvest isn't this big, nasty thing that we've always thought it was. You know, we've always touted that harvest, you know, and some species have had a lot of problems due to unregulated harvest, but with the fine scale monitoring and harvest regulations we've had, you know, we're showing that it's not the big driver that we've always thought it was. And we need to really... That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Very that's, we need to, and talk. we need to share that message more. So it's there's three there topics much. right there. Yeah. I want to know about that message because I've always assumed it was. And if it's not the big driver, then, so that's what I want to do is like, I, I hope that this is an ongoing deal because like there's so much in this lifestyle and this, this sector that I want to be a sponge. I want to know what's going on. And I just kind of wanted to get my feet wet with it today because, you know, I don't want to come in here and turn on this knob and then everybody go, dude, that, that guy's just saying shit that's so over my head that I don't even know where he's going. I really wanted to keep it common, you know, common ground to where people can understand that it's more than just a piece of metal on a bird's leg. It's more than the pull of that trigger. It's more than this. But I, there, the science part of it is so interesting to me. And I, I'm humbled to be able to do it, but I'm also very inspired that, and kind of envious that you have, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm pretty envious that you have the knowledge that you do and I don't on these birds. And I know that you're just going to sit there in your little quiet manner and go, well, everybody does it different, <laughs> Chad. But I'm, I'm telling you honestly that I'm envious because I want to be that guru guy that can say that these geese breeded over here east of the Hudson Bay and they did this. And I, when I'm listening to you say that, I'm like, that's badass. Like, that's as cool as it gets. So kudos to you on that. I have one more question. It's not a trick question. It has to do with like places like Oregon that have identification tests for the Canada goose species. I have a huge passion for Canada goose hunting, calling Canada geese. I know guys like that, you know, like John David Stanley are the same. He's won the world junior goose contest in Eastern Maryland on separate occasions occasions there's tests that you have to take in places like oregon to be able to identify canadies my it, kid's taking it tonight tonight yep are you going to hunt oregon yeah okay so how many species of canada geese are there two what are they canada geese and cackling geese subspecies 11 four cacklers and seven canadas what's the most common most abundant in north america giant canada goose Giant can of goose. What's the least common? Least right now is probably dusky Canada goose. So there's two species with 11 subspecies of Canada geese. The dusky, the taverner. Um, can you name them all? Sure, you want me to? Yeah, I do. Okay, so cacklers would be Aleutians, Minimas. You got to keep in mind, this is going back to your spec, speckle belly stuff, so or speck white front stuff. So I use stuff that provides clarity. So, again... Um, cacklers are the Aleutians, the Minimas, the Hachinziais, and then the Tavs. Then you've got the Canadas are the Giants, the Westerns, the Duskies, the Vancouvers, the Atlantics, and the Parvipes. Did I say them already? I can't remember, but that's them. Wow. So your daughter's, your kid's taking this test tonight. I missed one there somehow. You did. You only named six. Yeah. Think about it. I want you to get it right. I'll come up with it here in a minute. But yeah, the kids are asking. But yeah, we're heading up to do a good trip up uh, to the Pacific Northwest over New Year's. 
but yeah, but my daughter's taking it. Hopefully tonight we've been talking about it because yeah, you got to be required. But white cheek geese are a mess. I mean, right here. I mean, we've, I've been talking with the birders the last few days. There's a big argument about one goose that's hanging out at Rancho. You know, it's like okay, what is this? It's like they're a mess. You know, unless you got a pair of calipers to measure the culmin and a Munsell soil chart to look at the breast color, or maybe even run it through DNA, you might not know what it is. What about the sex? Oh, that's easy. Can you sex a goose from the air? Usually no, but some cases, yes. Really? Oh, yeah. So so if you go out with, if I, if I call Well, one in, of the easiest would be a family group with goslings, you should, you, the smaller of the adults. There you go. That's the girl. You know, sometimes you can see some, it's mostly behavioral. Um, you know, you get something like a brant, and I'd say 95% of the time I can tell a difference between a juvie and a, or a, sorry, a female and a male brant, mainly by their head shape. And a brant's not a subspecies of a Canada goose, no, correct? No, brant's a whole different species, but yeah. Yeah, it's all those subtle little things, and sometimes I'll be flat out wrong. <laughs> do, you, do you enjoy hunting Canada geese? Canada geese, no, I like the cacklers. Yeah, you Canada, like the cacklers. And up in Saskatchewan, same thing. You get those big days with mallards and honkers you know either giants or westerns that's what i forgot was a western that was the one i was no i think you said western okay damn can't figure it out (laughs) but yeah i mean i just there's multiple reasons one those big canadas i can feed them at the park 365 days a year i don't want to put that much gas in my truck to shoot something and actually the ones in saskatchewan we get lots of banded canada geese from nevada shot right there you know, it's like, why would I drive this far to shoot the same goose that I could shoot for $10 gas back home? And then second, they're hard to clean compared to a cackler. And second, I just don't find them as good to eat as a smaller Canada goose. I would agree 100%. You know, so to me, it's like... They I'm, decoy I, pretty. They decoy great. They a sound things awesome. do, but you know, if I'm going to... I know I'm in Saskatchewan for two weeks, so I'm going to let those big Canadas go by, and tomorrow we're probably going to have a really good cackler field. You know, and just hammer them because they're fun and they're squeaky and they're easier to eat and process, you know. Like I said, I'll bring home my possession limit every year and a whole bunch of cacklers take up with their wings, take up a lot less room in my chest freezer and my trailer than a whole bunch of big, huge Canada's. We're going goose hunting sometime. We need to go up to, like, uh, Savi Island. Have you done that? I have have not hunted Savi's. I've been there for other reasons. That's a blast. uh, Those geese are cool. Yeah. Those cacklers are cool. Yeah. No, but I want to do I want to do this again. I want to do it uh, I want to talk about, you know, locations. I want to talk about what, you know, where where would you want to go, it, you know, outside of the United States and Canada for waterfowl hunting? Is there something that's, you know, on is it Argentina, is it the South Island in New Zealand, is it Lima, Peru? There's a lot of things because you're a bird guy and when you go down to Argentina, you see birds that you never see up here. And when I was down there in July, I was like, "Man, these are beautiful. These silver teal are beautiful and these these rosy bills are cool as heck." And so now I'm, you know, I want to keep becoming more of a bird nerd and that's why I think it's cool to hear you talk about birders and guys that go out and stand on bird towers with binoculars and cameras and take pictures but they would never ever consider shooting a bird and eating a bird but 
we could team up with them and hopefully they see why we do it. And they, and we understand that they're not tree huggers. They're just in it for a different reason than we are. And that's, that, that's one of my other things is that down with CWA and being around Paul Bonderson and he's, you know, he's a former president of Ducks Unlimited and has Bird Haven down there. They, Autobahn uses his farm and in a place where ducks are getting killed during the season, they go in there in March and are taking pictures of migrating waterfowl and, and breeding waterfowl. And they're working together. And I think that that's really cool. And I think that that's a maturity deal of being able to, to, to say, yeah, that, that's that's what's needed to for us to make sure that this lifestyle and privilege is cemented for many years to come. Because it would suck that your daughter's 11 and by the time she turns 30 that she can't take her kids hunting. That would be a shame. Yep. So I appreciate you being here. I want to do it again. I'm going to get on your schedule because I know you're all over the, the map this time of year. But let's try to hook up sometime in January or February, maybe after the SHOT Show or something. Guys, this has been Chad Belding. Chris Nikolai has been my guest. He is a professional waterfowl biologist, a duck, goose, bird nerd. I mean, the guy has been there, done that, and I got a lot of respect for him. I'm very humbled that he came to the studio today. Today's episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody has been brought to you again by our friends at Mountain Ops and our friends down at the California Waterfowl Association. Thank you guys for everything that you do, and thank you again to our friends at Bird Dog Waterfowl um, for the uh, gift basket that they sent us this week. And you guys support Bird Dog Waterfowl. Follow them on some of the social media platforms. They got a good message and they're a good bunch of ethical dudes. For Chris Nikolai, I'm Chad Belding. This life ain't for everybody. Keep checking out season 10 of The Foul Life right now on Outdoor Channel. We got a lot more cool stuff coming. We can't wait for 2019. Thank you all so much for the support. Tom Rashashin, will you please do me a favor and play Leith Lofton, a.k.a. Haas, What You Gonna Do When The Money's All Gone. Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone